Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast. This is for UFC Vegas 24. Remember to smash the like button uh, in the comment section. Tell us who you think the apple pie shitter is this week. And I think I, I retweeted something recently about a movie club that we're starting. We're watching the movie Oni Mahoney. We're going to be, uh, there'll be a, a show released soon with uh, some special guests. Um, it's a real, it's a Canadian like gambling movie. Real, real like degenerate stuff. Good watch. Cody, are you going to get into it? I, I retweeted, there's like, it's on YouTube. You can watch it for free. Cody, are you going to get into it? I'm telling you. Okay, so Philip movies Seymour that Hoffman's they give away. Yeah, movies that they give away for on YouTube for free are generally awful. This Uni Mooney, is that what you called it? Never heard of it. Oni Mahoney. It's a, it, did you say it was a Canadian movie? So you got like the trifecta of absolutely <laughs> terrible movie coming your way. It's Canadian, it's free on YouTube, and no one's ever heard of it. Uh, however, it somehow made the movie clubs via Pat Mayo. I believe it was, uh, I don't know how he came across it. But yeah, I mean, if he's recommending it, might as well give it a shot. Nothing really else to do these days. So watching gambling movies, sign me up. It's like an hour and 45 minutes of your time. And trust me, uh, for me, like last week, absolute disaster. It went from like your belly parlays, like Goiti won that fight. So that one really, really stung. And then the UFC just playing stupid props, adding Jorgen DeCastro. When I'm like, I'm always against heavy, heavy chalk favorites. I just tried to force them in. I want something to parlay with Marvin Vittori. Uh, I played Jack Shore by sub, but I didn't play him straight up because I got greedy and didn't want the minus 170. Like, whatever could have went wrong uh, did go wrong in that one. And yeah, the movie's kind of relatable because I had such a horrible gambling week. And, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in this movie... Uh, some may say he has a bit of a problem, but uh, it's definitely worth checking out. I retweeted the uh, the YouTube link to it uh, pretty recently, and Pat's got you it know, all thought, up on his feed. Yeah, the fact that the late great Seymour uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's in it probably a decent movie because like he's one of the greatest actors actors of all time. You know, drug addict. But but all things aside, yeah yeah, I, I would I would give it a chance. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, the parlays last week we had what thirteen fight offering. Yeah, the the top bracket made it. If so, DQ Sif would have hit, we would have hit our seven to ones as well. Unfortunately, uh, I thought he did good in the first two rounds, but it's the punch that matters, right? He got dropped. That's the most meaningful shot of the round. He lost those first two rounds to Arnold Allen. Rallied a little bit back in the third. Clearly, did lose the fight. But uh, overall, I was I was happy with it. I mean, my main thing is I got to hit that top bracket, right? I've got three guys on my top bracket. Sometimes it's two, depending on the odds. Last week I think it was about plus two oh seven. I'm just trying to hit that. If I hit that, I'm not losing money. My worst case scenario is a break even, right? I have people that message me that'll be like, man, I put a unit on the top. They put a unit on all of them. It's like, that's on you, man. You're not supposed to bet the same amount on the first bracket, your most certain picks, as you are on a fucking PRP. But yeah. I'm not here to hold someone's hand. So if you lost money on it, ultimately, that's on you. But hey, we're here to rebound. It's a long season. We always talk about that. Marathon, not a sprint. And uh, yeah, we got another little decent offering coming your way. So uh, hopefully, if it wasn't a profitable weekend, we can get you back in the green. And if it was a profitable weekend, then we'll just keep that train rolling. All right. We got the main event this week. We have Robert the Reaper Whitaker taking on Kelvin Gastelum. Robert Whitaker can be had for minus 270. Gastelum plus 230. Who you got, Cody? 
yeah, so definitely a fight that's been a little while in the making. We got Robert Whitaker coming in, taking on Kelvin Gastelum. Initially, obviously, uh, a, a, probably a much more intriguing fight. You got Robert Whitaker taking on Paulo Costa. Paulo Costa with an illness, and that's why Kelvin Gastelum stepping in. And again, we, we know the narrative. We were supposed to get this fight already. Robert Whitaker weighs in. Both guys make weight. Robert Whitaker gets ill. He pulls out. Then you have Kelvin Gastelum walking around with the fake title. And quite literally, call it karma. Call it what you will. But like his career has kind of been in a downtrend since then. When he's at his best, he's beating up age legends, right? His run includes Tim Kennedy. That was the last fight of his career. Uh, Vitor Belfort, way past the prime. Michael Bisbing, J- Jacare Souza. Like, listen, he, he's beating old men, and he can beat them in striking battles fine. As soon as he tries to take on one of these top five, top ten guys, his game just goes out the door. He's too small as a middleweight. Paul, you and I have this talk every single time we break down a Kelvin Gaston fight. Guy's a natural welterweight, not a natural middleweight. And eventually, it's going to catch up to him. If he's fighting these geriatric 40-plus-old strikers on their way out, then, yeah, he'll probably will catch them at some point. If they have one eye, like Michael Bisping, and taking the fight on, like, two weeks' notice in China, yeah, yeah, he's going to catch these guys. It's beyond that. I just don't quite think he's there. Now, the Israel-Adesanya fight, that's the outlier, right? I mean, that's the one fight where it's like, damn, this guy's got it all in that fight. He gets the takedown over Adesanya. He strikes with him very competitively the entire way. He's probably got this fight 2-2 going into the fifth round. So, I mean, he's one round away from being the legitimate middleweight champion of the world. He head kicks out of Sonya. Like, everything's going his way. And then in that last round, he gets, what, knocked down four times? It's an mm-hmm. absolute life-changing beating at the hands of Israel Adesanya. On one hand, it propels the champ, Izzy, to, like, that superstardom, you know? Jesus is a guy that can pull through in the clutch. He needed that fifth round. He came through. He put on a master class performance. With, Gal- with Gastelum, it's like, okay, don't worry. We'll go back to the gym. We'll go back to the drawing board. We'll, we'll get back here. But... Since then, it's like he switched up his style. The Darren Till fight, which was the next fight after Adesanya, he, did, he didn't want to strike. He didn't want to fight. He literally stood there and watched the moment pass him by. One of the worst fights he'll ever see. And yes, he does lose. Despite, despite it being a split decision, him having like the slight... Dude, you land 40 significant strikes in a, in a five-round fight, and I get Till only land like 36. That's kind of Till style. It's like, what happened? You, you were, you were bum-rushing Adesanya. You were closing the distance. You were closing the gap. You were making me look foolish for saying you're too small as a middleweight because here he is having no trouble closing the distance and, and, and getting to a, a long-rangey accredited striker like Israel Adesanya. But against Darren Till, another long-rangey guy, did, didn't want to attack him. Against Jack Hermanson, he, despite having all the striking advantage over Jack Hermanson, he opts, I, I want to get Jack Hermanson down to the ground. Terrible move. Least to the heel hook, no problem. And then the Ian Heinish fight, again, he didn't want to strike with Ian Heinish. He scores six takedowns. That's his path to victory, using using that wrestling. So coming here on short notice against Robert Whitaker, if Robert Whitaker is damaged goods, and by the way, Robert Whitaker is a guy that's been through absolute hell in the UFC. He's a guy that, you look at all the numbers, I mean, he, he's, he's been hurt pretty bad. The Yo Romero fights, that's going to take something out of you. Darren Till basically almost knocked him out. He had him seriously stunned in that fight. Uh, you go back to even like way back when Stephen Thompson at welterweight knocks him out. Court McGee beat him up. Uh, Colton Smith of all people had a had, had a knockdown over him. It's like it, maybe it's damage accumulating. Maybe it's it's starting to get to him. Or like Robert Whitaker seems to be maybe missing a step, so to speak. But then you see him in the Darren Till fight, hurt. But here's a recurring theme with him: when he's hurt, he's not shying away from the fire. He's running into it. And I thought he legitimately won the Darren Till fight. He gets hurt. But he rallies back. He does the damage. He lands the numbers. He keeps coming at you. The old Romero fights, whether you thought he won those fights or not, when he gets hurt, he finds that extra gear. He, he, he is truly a champion. He's a guy that was the middleweight champ, lost it to Israel Adesanya, but he's still got those characteristics. He's still got that back class. And then the Jared Cannonier fight. Here's a fight where I have to eat some crow because I'm thinking, you know what? Cannonier is just too strong, too heavy set 
He's going to clip him at some point. And you see Whitaker. He's getting hurt in all these fights. He's getting dropped by all these guys. He's getting stunned in a lot of these spots. If you get hurt by Jared Cannonier, you're going to be a lot of trouble. And middleweight Cannonier is just a different level. Ever since he got that crystal of those crystals <laughs> and dropped down to 185 pounds, you do not want to play with Jared Cannonier. Again, you see that championship caliber out of him where it's just like he's he's his striking is like leaps and bounds more better than a lot of these guys in the division. His ring IQ is there. When he gets hurt, he's not he's not in it to quit. It's like he just finds that next way. He can find a plan B. He can find the next path of victory. He can make mid-round adjustments. That that's all important stuff. So coming into this Kelvin Gaslam fight, I think it's competitive and that Kelvin Gaslam's got a cast iron chin, right? So if you want to fight this guy for five rounds, you're quite literally going to have to fight him for five rounds. Wrestling is something that Whitaker has in his back pocket, not offensive wrestling, but taking him down is a serious problem. And the way Kelvin Gaslam has been fighting lately, it's a lot of using that offensive wrestling. So if Gaslam goes out there, shoots a couple of takedowns, doesn't take Whitaker down, which I don't expect him to, we got a, we got a striking battle on our hands. And looking at the numbers, looking at the strike itself, looking at the level, I'd say Robert Whitaker is a better striker. He's going to throw more volume. He's going to throw the more significant strikes. He's the longer ranger guy. He's got a better jab. He can fight from the outside. And he should be able to just rack up these points on KG. So... I think this fight's going the distance. Straight up, the money line is not very good for Robert Whitaker. No. I think like a lot of people are on his side, and this is this is live underdog Kelvin Gaslam, and that he can make it a dog fight if he chooses to. He hasn't been doing that lately, but he's still capable of it. He does have that chin, and as far as fighting five rounds goes, like Kelvin Gaslam's because he's the natural welterweight coming up to middleweight. Like cardio is not really a problem for this guy. He's got a lot of those intangibles. I just don't think he's ever going to get past the hump. I don't think he's going to make it quite to that next level. Fought for a title very competitively. Maybe that was him over the hump. I, I just I think that might have been like a one-off, you know, like he used up that little bit of magic. And I could be totally wrong here. I don't like this money line. So what I'd be chasing to get a better price on this is I'd go Whitaker, Whitaker by decision, or just hitting some of those over on the rounds. Over three and a half, over four and a half, fight goes the distance. Over four and a half is uh minus one fifty. Uh and yeah, I kind of agree with you. My problem in this spot, yeah, the minus two seventy, like I think if these guys fought ten times. Whitaker probably wins six to seven. Yeah, probably more like seven. Uh, I wouldn't, yeah, if it got up to like minus 400 completely out of the territory, but I think the line is more or less correct here. Um, if I was forced to actually make a bet on it, it would be Kelvin Gastelum, but uh, I've never loved him at middleweight. Luckily, he's fighting a former welterweight, but Whitaker's really put, packed on some muscle. He doesn't look too out of place. Uh, in this division, and and Gaslam's just never really fit in. So I'm kind of with you. I'd prefer the over four and uh, over four and a half at minus one fifty. My favorite play here. I'll lean towards Whitaker winning the fight, but don't really think there's very much value. We got Jeremy Stevens taking on a Dracker close minus one twenty. Stevens plus one hundred close. He got. Yeah, so this is Jeremy Stevens going back to 155 pounds, and I think that could kind of be the problem. So what we saw with last weekend with Sam Alvey is that Sam Alvey was winless in his last five. Yet a lot of people were still picking him for whatever reason, because again, Styles make fights. But this is Alvey looking for something new. Now he was dropping back down, but like he had spent his last seven fights at 205 pounds, wasn't fighting the success that he thought he'd have at, at light heavyweight, and then decided late in his career on a bad stretch. Like I said, he had lost four in a row, and then he had the draw. This is not a great look for Sam Alvey. Winless over his last five, going back down to middleweight. And the result against Marquez is just abysmal. I mean, he looked pretty bad. Now you can argue that Julian Marquez looked really good, something that I thought would might be the case just because he had so much ring rust in that last fight against Mackie Patolo that surely, quick turnaround, back in the gym, he'd look better here, and he did. But it was also, the writing was on the wall there for Sam Alvey. When I think about Jeremy Stevens, this guy's legendary. He's legendary in that he's been fighting in the game 
for, for a very long time. I mean, he made his UFC debut in what, like 2007 against Dean Thomas, of all people. He's been around for a very long time, and he's fought the absolute who's who's, all the best guys that have ever fought in the game. You can't discredit Jeremy Stevens at all. When he made his move down to 145, it was like, fine. Jeremy Stevens finally fighting at his proper weight class, 145. Dude always had a lot of power at lightweight. I mean, if that translates to 45, even if it's better at 45, great. But again, I mean, it's like father time catches up to everybody. And Jeremy Stevens is only 34 years old, but he's been fighting for a very, very long time. And as far as them matching up against the best guys, it hasn't been overly going his way. When you, when you run it back, the Duho Choi fight loses the first round, catches him in the second. Got that power. The Josh Emmett fight, you know. I thought he lost the first round, but again, catches him in the second. Dude's got that power. Jose Aldo melts him, but it's Aldo. He's one of the greatest of all time. You give him the pass. The beat Magomed Sharapov. Again, dude, it's a beat, you know, and especially in a three-round fight where he can just kind of matador you for the first two, like you're going to have problems. The Yair Rodriguez fight the first time, you know, you say, well, uh, is it no contest because of the eye gouge? But the second time, it's like he, he loses pretty clean here, all three rounds. Yair just too fast, fights from the outside. Calvin Cater. Calvin Cater is a sharp technical boxer, and he pieces him up and he knocks him out. And that was only the second time Jeremy Stevens had ever been knocked out. So now you got to think, 34 years old, you know, he's 28 and 18, man. I mean, that's for a reason. Dude's lost 18 fights because he's there to be an entertainer, but he's there to get hit. If his chin's starting to leave him ever so slightly, it's going to be a problem. And him going back to 155 pounds, again, it's going to be a problem. Now, what they've done is a big favor for him in giving him Dracker Close, who doesn't figure to chin check anybody. Nobody. So if Jeremy Stevens was feeling some ill effects from that last knockout loss, it's probably not going to rear its ugly head here. The problem I do have is that Jeremy, being the smaller guy, he needs to back up Close consistently. And he's got to land those strikes. I mean, he's one of these guys that he loves that low calf kick, right? And he loves just these looping overhand shots. And with Close, I just feel like Close is just going to start to, uh, you know, like accumulate a, a lead on the scorecards. Like he's just going to land the, the jab. He's just going to control him against the cage. He's just going to try to pressure him a little bit. One thing that Close does well, he's a generalist, but one thing he does well is that he's able to just control little actions of the fight. You know, he can strike from the outside. He's good in the clinch, up against the cage, and he just wears time off the clock. Now, a lot of these are crappy decisions, but... They give it to Dracar Close. I thought he lost the Bobby Green fight, but again, they just give it to him based on control, I guess. Neil Darius knocks him his last time out. That's a little over a year now, but I mean, dude, he had Neil Darius massively hurt in that fight. I think that there's a lot that you can like from Dracar Close. He's just one of these guys that's not going to knock anybody out. Now, he too is 33 years old. He's only a year younger than Jeremy Stevens. The difference here is that he's got 14 fights and mm -hmm. Jeremy Stevens has 18 losses. You know what I mean? He's got more losses than the kid's got pro fights under his belt i mean that in itself is just goes to show you that wear and tear this is probably another like passworthy fight just because could i see jeremy stevens coming in being alive under uh like a like a live fight for sure but he's minus 120 versus the plus 100 and dracker close it's pretty much even money i'd want to say dog or pass would be dracker close but you're not really getting much dog money out of that this figures to be for me another fight that goes the distance jeremy stevens could chin check anybody and we have seen close get knocked out his last time around but for the most part he's one of these guys that just goes through the motions goes through the 15 with Jeremy Stevens back at 155 power might not quite be there. You know, his cardio might be a little bit better. His speed might be a little bit better coming back down, back up to 155 pounds. But I don't know. I just, I get this impression that with, with Stevens, like his, his best days are certainly behind him. And when I go back to that Sam Alvey reference is that Stevens is on a terrible run here, dude. Again, he's winless in his last five. He's cleanly lost his last four. He's not won pretty much any round in those last four fights against the best guys in the world. Don't get me wrong. And now you're searching for something, you know, you're searching for something. Well, you go back to 55. I just, I don't know that it's the answer. So 
you know, pretty reluctantly, I think that the smart move probably pass on this one, but I'm kind of feeling a, a draft or close decision beyond that fight to go the distance. I'm not like super, super confident in just yet. Fair enough. Um, yeah, it's really tough to know what Stevens is going to look like. We haven't seen him since basically a year now. So I was putting in a bunch of time with Dominic Cruz. Cruz looked great last time out. I mean, in fairness, this is the easiest fight Jeremy Stevens has had in in quite some time. When you go through, like he, Lil Heathen, is taken on you know the cream of the crop. Calvin Cater just coming off of a title fight. Uh, Yair Rodriguez, um, very very talented uh, mixed martial artist, great skill set. Uh, Zabit, yeah, three rounds Zabit is a trouble for anybody. You got to extend them, and obviously he doesn't want those fights. And Jose Aldo. Um, I mean, that one was kind of a surprise getting finished in the first round against Aldo, but I don't hate Stevens in this spot. We'll wait until the weigh-ins come and uh, see if anything kind of jumps out at us. But uh, right now, I would pick Stevens, but no bet. Uh, Luis Pena takes on Alex Munoz. Pena, minus 150. Alex Munoz, plus 130. I mean, Alex Munoz, you know, he's most infamous, I suppose, for the Nick Newell fight where it felt like they didn't really want Nick Newell in the UFC. They gave, you know, the the guy with one arm, a freaking wrestler who was just going to, like, take him down and hump him. Um, that was a really, really painful fight to watch. Uh, comes out against Nazareth Hockprost in his uh, first uh, proper UFC fight and, and just kind of gets... You know, loses most of the exchanges, gets outstruck like three or four to one. Um, he's a he's a wrestler. He's going to probably stick to that game. Does he? I mean, obviously, Pena's a what six foot three lightweight. Has good grappling chops. You know, you used to uh, used to train at, um, at what's the name of San Diego? AKA, AKA of course. But now, what's what now? He's in ATT. Is he at ATT now? Okay, I yeah. didn't even know. I hadn't followed him through to this uh, this camp. Uh, I never end up betting on Luis Pena. Do you have a hot take on this one? Because I don't. Yeah, to be honest, I'd be willing to just take anybody against Luis Pena at this point. I just don't. I think he's total bust. Total bust. So he comes into the UFC and he's supposed to be, you know, he was off the Ultimate Fighter, and even though he like hurt his ankle on the show, it might have been like a skin infection. They they believe like this guy should have been the champion. He should have been the champion. So they give him Richie Smolin, another cast member of the show, his UFC debut, and he's a minus 370 favorite. Right away, you see this love for Violent Bob Ross. Oh, he's got a funny nickname. He's got an afro. He's tremendous for this weight class. Six foot three, 75-inch reach for this weight. It's like, good God. So they give him they give him the champ. They give him Mike Trezano. He's a minus 180 favorite over the Ultimate Fighter winners. On what basis? He's, he's showing you nothing, but he's got an afro, Paul, and he's got a great gimmick. No, no. Lose the fight to Mike Trezano, and that's where you start to see, like, his takedown defense isn't great. But uh, beyond that, it's like he's working at AKA. He's in there with the best guys. He's training with Khabib. He's training with Islam Makachev. He's training with an absolute plethora of some of the best wrestlers in the world. Surely that it's going to get better, right? No, wrong. So his next fight is Steven Peterson. And despite the fact that he comes in as a minus 240 favorite, he surrenders four takedowns to Steven Peterson. Strength. Then he gets Matt Wyman, right? Comes in as a minus 380 favorite over Matt Wyman. Okay, so they're giving him these fights, and he's like a three to four one favorite in all of them. Matt Frovola, same thing. He's he's the favorite over Favola, and then oh bam, now he loses again. Now this is the second time he's bust as a favorite, 
He gives up four takedowns to Matt Frivola. If you're keeping count, by the way, he got taken down twice by Smolin in his debut. He got taken down once by Trezano. He got taken down four times by Peterson. He got taken down Matt, once by Matt Wyman. He got taken down four times by Matt Frivola. Then he beat Steve Garcia, who did take him down. And then his last fight against Kamal Worthy, first time he never got taken down in his UFC career. Isn't that something, Paul? Isn't mm-hmm. that something that this guy's given up multiple takedowns to every single opponent that he's fought in the UFC so far? Bad look. And so as far as being six foot three, like he's got that that long, lanky jiu-jitsu game. Like he can throw up arm bars, he can throw up triangles, he can try to fish for an Oma Plata, but like this is 2021, man. And this is mixed martial arts at the highest level. Like you don't want to be on your back. You don't want these wrestlers on top of you. You're giving up time. The Kama Worthy fight was an embarrassment all, all around because the first round, he doesn't even attempt any takedowns on Kama Worthy. Like, I mean, we all know the way to be common worthy is just punch him one single time in the face. He tends to topple over, but Luis Pena has no striking. And I mean, the striking that he does have, he has no power, right? So it's like, okay, take this guy down. That's that's the next path of victory for common worthy. In the first round, no ring IQ, shoots no takedowns, gives a pretty poor account of himself. In the second round, he does get the takedown. He easily takes the back. It's a Pena round. We're 1-1 going into the third. Do, all you got to do is shoot one more takedown. You're going to be okay here. In the third round, Paul, he's gassed. He gassed right out. Now, call it bad weight cuts, and I think that this guy being that long, and I mean, he's still fairly young. He's only 27 years old. I think he's getting bigger. I think he's filling out the frame, and I just don't think that these weight cuts are as easy as they used to be. So at 155 pounds, you know, he should should be okay, but six foot three at the weight class, it might be draining him. I don't know, but you did see him get tired his last time out against Kama Worthy, right? So now he's supposed to fight on Drakkar Close, and Close's corpsman tested positive is, is what it is. So he's drawing Alex Munoz here. My worry with Alex Munoz is, Paul, we know what that guy can do. He's had a team alpha male. He wants to wrestle. The Nasrat Hakparas fight, he took Hakparas down in the first round. Wasn't able to replicate any of that moving forward beyond that. Ended up losing 30-27s across the board. Mm-hmm. But one, his chin checked out. Two, the guy fought all the way to the end. Three, what kind of what what who the hell makes an MMA debut or a UFC debut against Nazrat Hakparas? Like it wasn't exactly a, a fair situation for him. Mm-hmm. Nazrat was also like a minus three fifty favorite in that spot, so they didn't do him any favors. But again, this is a guy that beat Nick Newell very handily on the Contender Series, and then he has a win over Pretty Boy Troy Lampson on the Michigan regional scene. After that, and Troy Lampson wrestled at Michigan State. Like the guy's a pretty good wrestler. He goes out there and he shows, like, this guy's very strong. He's got that good wrestling. And as far as him being on top of Luis Pena, I think he could have a lot of success there in that spot. So, again, you're going to give me underdog money over anybody against against uh, Luis Pena. I'm willing to take the shot. I could not tell you what Luis Pena does well. He's not a very good striker. He's not a very good wrestler. He's not a particularly good grappler. He is good at taking the back against six foot three. He's got those long limbs. When he does take the back, he'll immediately put the body triangle in. And it is very difficult to get a guy with a body triangle off of your back. So he can just coast out these rounds. He did that against Matt Wyman. He did that against Steve Garcia. And he did do that in the second round against Kama Worthy. So is it possible that he's able to just find the back, lock in the body triangle, and hold for a round? Yeah, but is that how you want to win fights? Is that a fighter's mentality? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to backpack this guy? That's, that's my path to victory? That's Pena's path to victory. So they're giving you plus 125 on Alex Munoz. I think he'll look better in his second fight in the UFC. We see this all the time. Maybe it's octagon jitters. Call it what you want to call it. But the sophomore outing, the second time you're out there, you're a lot more comfortable. You've got stuff out of the way. You've experienced this already. I think that we're going to see a better version of Alex Munoz. He's going to go out there. He's going to secure the takedown. He's going to hold him down. He's going to win this fight. So plus 125, I'm going to take the underdog shot on Munoz. All right, let's go. Dogger pass. 
type of situation. All right, we got Bill Aljeo taking on Ricardo Ramos. Aljeo minus 120, Ramos plus 100. I mean, Ricardo Ramos is a guy that I thought kind of had I thought there was something there when he when he first broke into the UFC. Obviously, he comes in, he takes on Tanaka, looks pretty slick, and like a lot of his highlights on like the the regional scene, like the guy looked super super slick. He's only twenty five years old, so maybe we're still getting a work in progress here. Zahabi, he's not looking too great all all that much, and then throws like a double spinning uh, back elbow, ends up getting the knockout there. Split decision win over Kyung Ho Kang. Obviously, he's losing to Nurmagomedov and Lerone Murphy, who I think are top 10 at least guys in this division, so no real shame in that. Um, but he doesn't really sh- throw all that much volume. I don't know if he's got the greatest wrestling game. Aljeo definitely has more of a volume type of game. Doesn't have much power. It's a very interesting matchup. Um, watching tape and stuff on it. I'm leaning towards Bill Aljeo, Bill Aljeo by decision, just kind of based on volume, but I'm not too sure. I'm not feeling too hot about it. What about you? Yeah, I think Bill Aljeo goes out there and pieces this guy up, and then for the odds, I think it's pretty good. Now, I've been seeing a lot of love for Ricardo Ramos online. It's just I don't think he ties it all that well together, and he's only 25 years old. He's at Team Alpha Male now. Surely he could make a lot of improvements, but... I, I'll go back to 2016, that Legacy FC 51. So it was featured on, remember Dana White's looking for a fight? Like they'd go around and eat some carnival food and do something stupid and, and then go watch a fight. And specifically, they're like, we're here to see Ricardo Ramos. Everybody just raves about this guy. He's the real deal. Uh, we're, we're here to see him. He takes on Manny Vasquez and he got choked out in a minute 45. So it was strange because he was billed as, you know, a, a BJJ, you know, like whiz, and he's got great grappling. And if you remember that fight, he just gets taken down like nothing, gives up his back and submitted. All right, fine. He's going to have to build his way back up. Beats uh, Alfred Kazakian, you know, training partner of Ronda Rousey. He comes to the UFC. Tanaka, Zahabi, Kyoho Kang. I didn't think he looked exceptionally well in any of those fights. The Eamon Zahabi fight in particular loses the second round. The third round, he's losing, and then he throws the same telegraph spinning back elbow twice. Second one actually lands. Knocks out as a hobby. Big win. Beats Mr. Perfect. That is actually a decent little win considering Mr. Perfect's no pushover. And then he gets Saeed Nurmagomedov knocked out. No big deal. Jeremy Newsom fight. Doesn't look good. Eduardo Gagarori fight. It's a gimme. And then that Lerone Murphy fight in particular. It's like, what, what's he doing with those little, like, back kicks? Like, what's, what's he doing? Like, he just doesn't tie his game together particularly well. And I think that's part of being 25 years old, still being green, still being relatively new, still trying to figure out your game is that like i don't know what he wants to do in there is he this grappling whiz does he want to get these fights to the ground his, his wrestling offense is just not good enough to make sure that consistently i'll be able to take the fight to the ground as far as his striking goes it's more just like like flim flam you know it's flash like he'll throw the spinning back, back elbow he'll throw a flying knee he'll throw you know the, this this little calf kick thing behind the back like i don't know but it's just it's all flash there's not a whole lot of substance there you know, cardio doesn't seem to be an issue, but he kind of struggles the later the fights would go. Like, I just don't I just don't really know what I like out of him. Whereas Bill Aljeo, like I like a lot of out of this guy. First of all, he's a BJJ black belt and he's a stud in terms of his kickboxing. You mentioned the fact that maybe he doesn't have a ton of power, but the difference between him and a guy like Jakar Close, and both of them don't have a ton of power, is that at least he's willing to go hit land a hundred significant strikes and just batter you down. Confidence at his all-time high. Uh, like I mentioned, he's, he's got a black belt. He runs his own gym. The guy can wrestle. Bill Ojo can really do it all. They give him a debut against Ricardo Lamas. And again, they've done absolute no favors to this man. 
by giving him a debut against Ricardo Ra uh, Lamas on short notice. And what does he do, Paul? He gives a good account of himself. He goes out there, he lands a takedown over Lamas, which a lot of people didn't see coming, lands 89 significant strikes, relatively kept the striking close. But you're taking on a former title challenger, you're taking on a guy that's top 10, top 5 of the division, a guy that's you know been there, done that against the who's who's of the sport. That's a tough debut. So again, Spike Carlisle's last time out. Underdog against Spike Carlisle. Why would that be? It's like you and I, we're on the same boat. This guy can replicate the same thing that Billy Q did against Spike Carlisle. He's got a great gas tank. He's got great punch output. And even if you take him down, he's a black belt. So he'll work his way back up and he'll put the pace on you. And that's exactly what he does. I thought he looked really good against Spike Carlisle. He gave up four takedowns, but he made him work the entire time, broke him down, took him in some deeper waters and beat him there. I think that's what he's going to be able to do against Ricardo Ramos. I could see him getting taken down early in the fight, even though, as I mentioned, Ricardo Ramos is wrestling not that great, that Bill Joe is one of these tall, lanky guys. Maybe you can get in on his hips. Ramos spending time at Team Alpha Male. Obviously, that's something he probably has been working on. But ultimately, even if he does take down Billy uh, Aljeo, Aljeo is just going to get back up. And when he does get back up, you're going to see him just start landing two to three for every Ramos strike. Once Ramos starts to get hit and he starts to breathe, starts to breathe heavy, he starts to question himself a little bit. Once he starts to question himself a little bit, he starts to telegraph and become a lot more predictable. And I think Bill will just slowly be able to pull away. This is not only a fight that will have Bill J.O. pre-fight. It opened up minus 110. I think it's Al J.O. minus 125. So I'm in on both of those. But I could also see live betting him after the first round, thinking Ricardo Ramos would be good in the first round, might even mm -hmm. win the first round. But I think Bill just keeps going, and I think that's where he'll be able to find the holes and exploit this kid. So uh, I'm going to take Al J.O. Al J.O. by decision. Sounds good. All right, we got uh, Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. Taking on Jacob Malkoon, minus 300 for Al Hassan. Jacob Malkoon can be out for plus 250. This fight up at middleweight. Obviously, Al Hassan has missed weight the last two times out. Obviously, missed it against uh, Munir Lazez. Followed it up. Uh, missing 170 pounds against Chaos Williams and got, you know, stretchered. That was a nasty knockout. Absolutely starched uh maybe that'll help the guy's gas tank he's you know always been kind of a one round type of fighter you get him into the second round the wheels start falling off he doesn't throw too many strikes and and usually his opponent takes over but <sighs> moving up a weight class he's what 35 years old like this guy kind of got started late in the game as it was i know malcoon looked horrible it's a similar type of style matchup as taking on Phil Haas, and he got absolutely flatlined immediately. But minus 300 on Al Hassan moving up a weight class. Like, oof. This is about as much of a pass as I've ever seen in my life. This is like, this, this just reeks of apple pie shit, Cody. Paul, my friend, you're right. This absolutely reeks of apple pie shit. And Razul Abdul Hassan, uh, Razak Al Hassan, sorry. He's another one of these guys that falls in the same boat that, like, he's let people down numerous times as a heavy favorite, and yet Styles make fights, man. And if you give him a winnable fight, he's going to come in as a big favorite. His losses in the UFC on Mariok Madoff, the first one, he was a minus 265 favorite over him. His second loss to Munir Laziz, he's a minus 350 favorite over him. And Chaos Williams is a minus 210. So here's a guy that's already shit in three apple pies as a sizable favorite. As you mentioned, 35 years old, he's actually only a few months away from his 36th birthday, and the blueprint's been written on him. He has no card. He can fight one round. Now, consider the guy's name is Judo Thunder, and he's an accredited Judo black belt. His takedown defense, as soon as he gets tired, is non-existent. Uh, Mariok Madoff takes him down six times. Saba Hamasi took him down. Munir Lezez, who figured to have no wrestling, took him down four times. And this isn't these guys are great wrestlers or that his takedown defense isn't good. It's that once he gets tired, 
everything just goes right out the window. Now, what he does have is tremendous power. As far as welterweight goes, he was one of the heaviest punchers at 170 pounds. The problem is, is that you can't just be a heavy puncher. You got to be able to do other things like fight for a few rounds, have a decent chin, have decent defense and all that stuff. He, he just doesn't have. You look at the Saba Hamasi fight the first time around. He got seriously rocked by Saba Hamasi. Uh, the, the Nico Price fight, knocking out Nico Price 43 seconds. That's impressive. You're going to go out there and knock out a guy that's top 15, 43 seconds. It shows he's got the power. If he touches, if he connects, you're in a whole lot of trouble. But we didn't know that Munir Laziz turned out to be a big body, turned out to be a rangy guy, turned out to be a little bit better than we thought. With Chaos Williams, geez, we didn't really know that this guy had massive hand speed and, and, and big power. It's that it took fighting Al-Hassan to figure out who those guys were. With Mal Kuhn, it's like we kind of know who this guy is. First and foremost, we like to laugh at Kelvin Gaslam not being a middleweight. Yeah, th this Jacob Malcoon is not a middleweight, man. He's five foot nine. He's not a particularly big guy. He's Robert Whitaker's BJJ coach. He's appeared on two UFC cards now, both because of Robert Whitaker, right? Whitaker's on the card. Throw this guy up. Phil Hawes needed, what, 18 seconds to melt him because he shouldn't have been at that level. Mm -hmm. He shouldn't have been on a main card to begin with. It was a joke. Can he go to the drawing board and all of a sudden recorrect all these mistakes? Like, I, I don't know. And with Phil Hawes, I'm not a huge Phil Hawes guy, but Phil Hawes has got one round. You know, he's an explosive athlete. He's got big power. He's got five minutes worth of cardio. That's it. Yeah, he made me look bad his last time out getting the win, but it's like, come on, man. He looked good for the first round. He looked like absolute shit for rounds two and three. All he did was cling on to him against the cage. Like, it was a really bad look. But for the first five minutes, he's dangerous, and that's all he needed against Malcoon. I think the same thing with Al-Hassan. I think Al-Hassan's only got five minutes, but he'll need less than that. Once he connects on Malcoon, that should be it. Fighting at 185 should actually be better for him, right? He had bad weight cuts. He had bad cardio problems. So fighting up a higher weight class, it'd be okay. The problem is going to be fighting up a higher weight class against somebody who's going to lean on you and grind mm. on you and tire you out. But I don't think Malcoon's physical enough to do that. I don't think Malcoon's wrestling's good enough to get the takedown in the first round because of the judo background. What he needs to do is survive the first round take him into two, take him into three. So as far as a pre-fight bet goes, it would have to be Al-Hassan, Al-Hassan by knockout. But again, this is another fight that you're going to want to look at the live betting opportunity. Not to re-bet Al-Hassan, but if this fight doesn't end in the first round, all of a sudden Malcoon's looking like he's got a shot because at some point he could just drag him to the ground. And one has to figure he is the BJJ black belt. If this fight did hit the ground and he was on top, he probably would have some success. I'm just struggling to figure out how he does that in the first round. Mm -hmm. And I think that this fight might only go beyond might only be one round so probably take this fight to be the under obviously but i'm also going to look at al hassan al hassan by knockout the line like you said i mean Ugh, fool me once, even those lines you. are horrible fool man. me twice shame on me fool me three times which he's done at this point you're going to be fooled the fourth time like he's definitely prime apple pie shitter he's done it many times before this is another spot but for a guy that I don't want to get into like the whole personal shit, but for a guy that was accused of what he was accused of, the UFC is doing him a big favor here. One, keeping him on the roster, and two, giving him Jacob Malkoon. They like this guy. They like something they see in this guy. They're trying to get him back in the winning column, and uh, I think that this should be the one. But uh, I'm not going to be overly surprised if this gets to the second round and he completely gasses out again. And as always, probably got to wait to see the weigh-ins just to get that real clear picture of how these guys uh, pair up with each other. Well, in fairness to Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, that was all thrown out, all of those legal troubles. So Yes, and I don't even want to talk about it, but you're right. He was exonerated of all that shit, or else surely he would not have a job right now. 100%. 100%. So happy, happy that it got thrown out uh, and that it was all 
you know, a whole bunch of malarkey. But yeah, the under is already juiced to minus 145. Like uh, him by knockout is minus 149, I see. Like, does he win this fight 60% of the time by knockout? Like, the margins are very thin here. If Malkoon is his BJJ coach, it's 20 to 1 for him to win by submission. Am I, is that crazy? No, I mean, we've no, we've never really crazy. seen it, you know, in action. But, I mean, you probably, you have to survive that first round, clearly, but... 20 to 1 Malcoon by submission. I don't even know if this guy's any good, but I know the Al Hassan gasses. And if this guy's able to survive that early onslaught, and maybe the power doesn't translate up to 185 pounds. I, I mean, Malcoon looked horrible, but I. We only yeah. saw him for a little bit. So 20, yeah, to one, 20 to 1 is 20 to 1. Yeah. Anyway, now let's move on. We got Andre Arlovsky taking on Chase Sherman. Cody, Andre Arlovsky, minus 120, Sherman, plus 100. Is Shermania running wild here? Because I don't really understand. I don't understand. I know our Andre Arlovsky is old as shit, but it's the heavyweight division. Andre's fought the much better fighters. Sherman, he's been making, this is a guy who's formerly, you know, the worst heavyweight in the UFC. I'm not going to, I don't say that anymore. We've definitely set the bar a lot lower than uh, Chase Sherman at this point in time. I see the line keeps coming down. More people are piling into Sherman. I don't get it. I don't get it. Can you explain it to me? Yeah. So the way I would see it is that under Lofsky one, he's taking this fun on short notice, stepping in for Parker Porter. So yeah, it's like Chase Sherman's going to fight Parker Porter. Now he's got to take on Andre Lofsky. Like, isn't, isn't that one hell of a step up? But, Andre Arlovsky is just, he's, they're sparring rounds, man. That's all they are. He just goes out there and he, and he spars rounds. There's no knockouts. There's no power being thrown. And there's basically no fucking output. Like, it's, he's one of my favorite fighters of all times, right? This is a guy that I originally got into the game being a massive Andre Arlovsky fan. But, like, his, the fights are so boring, man. He's 42 years old and he's fighting excellent game plans. He went from Greg Jackson's camp, which is right down the shitter to ATT and then they put together the good game plan it's like dude go in there against these kids and just land the one punch per round like they're not even swinging on them there's just way too much respect there what I mean by that is you go back okay when he gets caught he gets knocked out sure we don't even have to talk about that let's talk about him beating these prospects that nobody sees coming right the junior Albini fight uh, you know the 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 Felipe Linz fight the Tanner Bozer fight okay well the Linz fight he lands 50 strikes in a 15-minute period, 50 strikes. Linz was not in good shape. Linz didn't really do anything. It's really low output. It's not a very particularly exciting fight, and Andre Arlovsky edges it. The Tanner Bozer fight, he got outstruck 68-34, to 34. And, and, he, and he won it. He landed 34 significant strikes over the course of 15 minutes. Probably should have lost the fight to Tanner Bozer, but all Bozer was doing was leg kicks, and all Arlovsky was doing was throwing five punches per round. And the judges ended up liking the five punches per round. So, so they gave it to Andre Olovsky. Well, Paul, he doesn't hurt these guys. He doesn't sting these guys. He literally just stands there. It's, it's, you can go to any gym in North America and watch a sparring session. And, and that's, that's all he's doing, right? So with Chase Sherman, it's not like Chase Sherman's a world beater by any stretch. But Chase Sherman has a decent chin. Chase Sherman's got much better output. He's also the bigger, longer guy. And so could he stay to the outside and just chip away and... 
you know, try to make something happen for himself? I think so, man. He's six foot four with a 78 inch reach. So if you want to play that game, great. Now, here's the thing with Chase Sherman. He's not really a state of the outside jab kind of guy. He's uh, don't move your head, move straight forward at the guy and come at him. And a lot of the times they're countering him and they're hurting him. But Arlovsky doesn't really have that same power anymore. So I don't think he hurts Sherman and keeps him off him. What I probably see happening is Sherman just outpointing him. So as we talked about with Arlovsky, it's like he lands 30, 40, 50 significant strikes over the course of 15 minutes. Like Chase Sherman's quite the opposite. He lost to Augusto Sakai. He landed 79 strikes in, in before getting knocked out, right? The Willis fight, 70 strikes. His last fight against Ike Villanueva, he lands 51, and it's 49 seconds into the second round. He landed more strikes through one round than Arlovsky does in an entire fight. Now, again, it's against Ike Villanueva, but Andre's not fighting world beaters. He's fighting Felipe Lin. He's fighting Tanner Bozer. Like, this is the level that Andre Arlovsky's operating at nowadays. So it's not that it, both of them are live. Both of them could win this fight. They're not giving you a good line either way. Chase Sherman is a plus 105 underdog. And to be quite honest, I'm kind of feeling the same thing. It's a dog or pass type fight. Listen, it, 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 You're sick. You're I sick. know. They're, they're bottom end heavyweights. They're bottom end heavyweights. You got Chase Sherman's 11 years younger than Andre Orlovsky. He's also a guy that fought five rounds against the bare knuckle boxing champion of the world, Joey Beltron. And like, he can take a shot. He's not training in nowhere, Mississippi anymore. You see his strength and conditioning is getting a lot better. You see he himself is improving. Confidence is coming up. And now they're giving him a fight with Andre Olovsky. That's easy to get motivated for. Whereas Andre Olovsky, who the fuck is Chase Sherman, right? Andre's fought in everybody. He's been a former champion. He's fought in every organization that mattered, pretty much, except for Pride, I suppose. Um, it's like he's been around. He's, he's done that. He's 42. Like, he's taking this fight on short notice. Like, is that, is that the kind of thing you want to get behind? Again, I can see him winning this fight, but I could very easily see him losing this fight as well. I wouldn't want a ton of exposure on it, but ever so slightly, I would say it's Dogger Pass. And technically speaking, Sherman be the underdog. Um, I, I'm kind of leaning that route myself. I would say Pitbull or Pass. Friends don't let friends bet on Chase Sherman, Cody. All right, let's move on. We got Bartos Favinsky taking on Gerald Mearshart. Bartos, minus 135. Gerald Mearshart can be had 4 plus 115. Bartos obviously coming off of the uh, submission loss. That one uh, particularly stung for yours truly against uh, Andre Muniz. Obviously a bad spot and susceptible to the submission. You know, he, he always goes for these takedowns. We love him. We love his style. We know what he's going to do. Mearshart obviously coming off of getting absolutely roasted by uh, by Kamayev. That seems like an eternity ago now. This is a weird fight. Like, usually I would say, like, Fabinski, you know, Fabinski's going to be able to take him down. But we've seen that hole in his game now. We know that... The guy falls into submissions. He leaves his neck open. He's obviously it was a beautiful arm bar from Muniz. But yeah, you could tell when he got to the ground, if he's not able to just hold you and secure you, he is uh, susceptible to the submission. So Gerald Mearshar, love him or hate him. He is, I, I believe he has the most submissions in the, in the middleweight division. Uh, I don't have a great read on this, but I don't want to get... You know, I don't want to see my boy Bartos get uh, submitted and me have money on it. So right now where I lean, I'm I'm thinking Mearshart. And God, that feels sick just saying it out loud. What about you? Yeah, I'm not going to bail on my boy Bartos Fabinski just because of one slip up. Now, listen, we know what we're getting into when we bet Bartos Fabinski. He is possibly the most one-dimensional fighter in the UFC. 
He comes in, he looks for the takedown. When he's on top, he holds you down, rinse and repeat for the course of 15 minutes. But uh, yeah, no, you got to catch this guy. You got to hurt this guy. You got to submit this guy, or else he's just going to keep taking you down and smothering you. That's a massive problem for him. It's not like it's the most entertaining fights out there. It's just that it's like it's a do- dominating performance. You see him go out there in, in his first three fights in the UFC Gareth McCollum, Hector Rubina, Emil Weber Meek. You know what those three guys have in common? None of them have a job with the UFC anymore. None of them can wrestle. So Bartosa is going to go out there and he's going to have his way with those guys. Now he gets Michelle Prezeros. Well, now, now you got a problem on your hands. Prezeros can do a little bit of everything. He's well tenured. He's got a lot of, uh, you know, he's got a lot of tricks up his sleeve. And if you watch that fight, I mean, he gets seriously rocked by Michelle Prezeros. Him being hurt gives up this guillotine choke, gets caught in the submission. Fair. It takes like two years off after that, comes back against Darren Stewart. Now he moved up to 185 for the Darren Stewart fight. Weighs in at 181 pounds, so he was small. You and I both riding him as the underdog. And he just goes out there, takes him down, rinse and repeat. Nice little win. We're all happy. We're all team Bartos. Now this Andre Muniz fight. Andre Muniz is a third degree BJJ black belt. Andre Muniz is the kind of guy you do not want to go to the ground with under no circumstance. But Bartos has really no other path other than take a guy down. So what does he do? He takes him down. Now he gets locked up in the guillotine right off the bat. I'm sweating. I'm like, oh, no, Bartos, we're in the guillotine. Again, he got caught by Prezeris' guillotine. This seemed like a move that he kind of leaves his neck vulnerable. He doesn't tap to the guillotine. He fights his no. way out. And the second he fights his way out and pops out, it's like a breath of fresh air. Like He's like, fuck yeah, and then whoop, armbar. It's like, oh, no. That's what happens when you deal with a guy like Andre Muniz. He's a different level. He's very, very, very good off his back. You do not want to play that game with him. It was early in the fight still. He basically fought, fell right into his trap. So coming into this spot, we got Bartos again. He's 34 years old. He's extremely one-dimensional. Like, why would you want to back him? But I, I think I think it would work here. With Gerald Mearshart, he has all those submissions, and no doubt about it, this guy is a good submission guy. But he relies heavily on catching guys once they're already gassed out. So his submission wins are Duran win, which is coincidentally his last win overall. Third-round submission, Duran win is completely gassed out. He hurts Duran win to the body, takes him down, gets the submission, rear naked choke. The Trevin Giles fight, he lost the first two rounds. And in the third round, Giles is unbelievably tired and he's able to catch him with the guillotine choke. The Oscar Pachota fight. Oscar Pachota is completely dead dog tired and he catches him with the rear naked. So that's the trend there is that Mirashard a lot of the time is not really cruising by these guys significantly. They're close fights. It's that he's got a decent gas tank on him and once you get tired, he ends up finding that move. I'm not sure if that's the case here. And another problem with Gerald Mirashard is that he was notoriously known for like a cast iron chin. Like, Knocking this guy out was going to be one hell of a problem. I mean, he hadn't been knocked out in any of his career fights. Now he gets matched up against uh, Tiago Santos, right? If you remember that fight, he got knocked out in the second round. Mm -hmm. The shots he took, Paul, it was like, dude, Gerald Mearshart's got one hell of a chin on him. But like anybody, age and just wear and tear catches up to you. So he's 33. He's he's a year younger than Bartos. But when you look at his 31-14 and record, it's like, God damn, dude. He's got 45 pro fights under his belt, and now his chin is officially broken. Ian Heinish knocked him out in a minute 14, and then Chemayev knocks him out in 17 seconds. He can no longer take a punch, but again, the UFC's matchmaking team has done an excellent job in giving him a guy that doesn't figure to do that. Just like we talked about with Jacker Close, not a power puncher. Bartos Fabinski, not a power puncher. Never but won. Yeah, Bartos has never won by knockout. No, and, and, and this ain't going to be the first time. Let me go ahead it's and great matchmaking that, but, for sure. For sure, right? Because how do you got how do you keep a guy who's competitive against a certain level still fighting, right? Well, you gotta you gotta give him these spots, and that's the spot they've given Mirashart. So sure, he's lost his last two, hasn't looked good, but losing Ian Heinish, no big deal. Losing to Chmayev, really no big deal. 
that's all well and good. But he talked a lot of shit before that Chimaev fight about how he was going to submit him, how he was going to beat him. He was got his hands up, wants to fight him. To me, this is just signaling like the end of the road is showing up for Gerald Mearshart. He's taken a lot of damage. He's been knocked down his last two fights. He's not quite the guy he used to be. Uh, did he get robbed against Kevin Holland? Maybe. But talk about an exhausted, just a very, very sloppy fight. It doesn't bode great. So he's got, his, he's got the striking advantage over Bartos Fabinski. This fight stays standing. He's going to chew up Fabinski. He's got the submission game over Fabinski. He maybe has a slight cardio edge over Fabinski. I agree with your assessment. I would agree that maybe Jeremy Rashard's a live dog. I could see people making that shot. But for me personally, I'm going to roll with my guy Bartos again because, again, I mean, you can have those advantages. He's going to take you down. He's much stronger than Gerald, right? He's got a better takedown game. He's going to take him down. And when he does take him down, he's just going to lie on top of him. Gerald's best submission is the rear naked in which he'd have to get on Bartos' back. That's mm. not going to happen. Or the guillotine. But Bartos stuffed out that guillotine by Andre Muniz. He was ready for it. You know, He took his time and got out. It was the armbar followed up. If he pops his head out of that Mirashar guillotine and starts raining down very light ground and pound and secures a round, comes out and does it again for the second, I think he could be okay. The smart move would be pass, right? I, I'm, I'm clearly betting emotionally. I've got a Bartos bias. I like the guy. I like the guy in that. You don't have to be the most entertaining guy in the world. Just go out there, take the opponent down, take the safe route. I know I shit on Andre Orlovsky for having a terrible, terribly boring style, and it's a striking style, but it's like he's just he's just doing the bare minimum. It's like Bartos just doesn't know much more than what he's doing. Is he more effective at 170? 100%. Would I rather see him at 170? 100%. But Jared Mearshart's also a natural welterweight himself that just kind of outgrew the division as he got a little bit older, so... I think it's live. Now, I would classify this thing as just like the, a dog or t- pass type fight. And in that regard, you're getting the, you're getting the underdog of Jared Mearshaw plus 110. So I'm not going to shit on your side of things here, Paul. But I, I am going to roll one more time with my boy Bartos Fabinski. If he loses here, he's effectively done. I won't put money on him anymore. Um, but, but I got a feeling that his style might be able to pull one out here. Don't get me wrong. I'm not putting a cent on Gerald Mearshaw. What about the – why don't we just st- stop overthinking it? Bartos can't finish a sandwich. And if you think that, you know, that Gerald's not going to get a sub on on Fabinski here, why don't we just bet the over two and a half rounds, minus 120? Yeah, yeah, I I would say so. I would say the over, and you're just hoping that he doesn't catch him with something. But, yeah, if Bartos has his way, it's just a lot of top control and not much happening. Mearshart has his way. He's the natural finisher in the spot, but... Yeah, I'm not fully seeing it. I'm also looking at if Bartos is going to win a fight, he wins it by decision, right? Which is plus 155 Bartos by decision. But yeah, I mean, if, if you want to be smart with your money, I don't think this is the kind of... Again, when we're building parlays, this is not a top ticket parlay piece. This is not a second level parlay piece. This is a guy that ends up third, not even third, fourth, fifth line down. He's on the PRP, right? You bet 0.1 of a unit on the PRP. You bet a 0.3 of a unit on your bottom end parlay. But as far as your safe picks that you might bet one to five units on those are your key guys this is not a key guy there's just too many variables he has you know let us down a few times but we, we see you know the great thing about bartos and this kind of killed you killed a lot of people with jorgen de castro the best time to get jorgen is the no expectations jorgen he's an underdog you're not expecting anything else when the dude's a three to one favorite like you don't want to bet him are you kidding me bartos is kind of the same thing he was the favorite over muniz and he shouldn't have been and he's the favorite here and maybe shouldn't be if he's the underdog, we're both backing Bartos. As you start to have expectations out of Bartos, you realize he's extremely limited. Just like Jordan Castro, he's extremely limited. He can win a fight, but you'd much rather bet him at three or four to one than as a favorite, right? And yeah, I'll be the first one to admit Bartos Fabinski is—he's uh, like a—he's a no talent John Fitch. You know, John Fitch could kind of do it all at least, 
but his, his best pass victory was just blanket guys, right? Yeah. That's what Bartos does as well, blanket guys. And that's what he's got to do here to get this win, just blanket. I'm hoping he goes out there and does that, but I can see it going the other way as well. All right, we got Tracy Cortez taking on Justine Keish, minus 275, Cortez plus 235 for Keish. Cortez coming back down to 125 pounds, which I think fits her frame a lot better. Any concerns about this matchup with Keish for her? No, I think Tracy Cortez should have a, I wouldn't say a relatively easy time. One thing I'll give Keish is that she's extremely strong. Like Here's a girl that's very raw, tends to make a whole lot of mistakes, but physically very strong and aggressive, will come at you. So with Tracy Cortez... One thing that you got to keep in note is that she's not a great striker. She needs to get these fights to the ground. But as far as getting these fights to the ground, like that's her bread and butter, and she seems to do it very well. I think that would be the path here for sure is just routinely go out there, get the takedown, and just grind Justine Keish down. With Keish, if you look at her level of opponent, right? So she got submitted by Sabina Mazzo the last time out. Mazzo's as green as green gets and a natural striker. She beats Lucy Putalova before that. Lucy Putalova, not all that good, but she, she's a striker. Jiyun Kim, split decision win. Jiyun Kim is very much a one-dimensional striker. And then you get Felice Herrick. Now, that's the last time she took on a grappler. and That, that was the spot that was the eye-opener. Like She was getting taken down relatively easy by Felice Herrick and fighting off her back, no good. In fact, she fought so hard to get off her back that she shit her pants. Uh, now, do I, would I want to back Justine Keish fighting off her back? No, that's recipe for getting shit in my apple pie. And I'm just not going to have any of that. I think Cortez goes out there, secures the takedowns, holds Keish down. Keish is also, she's also 33 years old. You saw her on the Ultimate Fighter way back when, and it was like she blew out her knee. That was the reason why she was no longer on tough. And it seemed like she just had a lot of uh, a lot of injuries that were like racking up. And that was way back in the day. Since then, you see, I mean, she fights once a year. She fought once in 20, or she fought, yeah, she takes a two-year gap between 2014, 2016, fought twice that year, fought once in 2017, fought once in 2018, managed to get two fights in last year. Uh, but loses that latter one by Sabina Mazzo. And again, this is the problem, is that with Keish, she was always really green, really strong, but like maybe eventually she'll tie this game together. Seeing her lose to Mazzo, who's like 20 years old and very green still, is like Keish is just not making those improvements. Does she look okay in the first couple rounds against Mazzo? Okay, sure. But it's like, I, there's just not enough that you can like out of her. So with Tracy Cortez coming down to 125 pounds, you would think that this is the weight class she should be in. The wrestling should be even better. The strength should be better. She should be able to go get those takedowns. Literally, the only one thing that could go wrong is that dropping the weight, coming down to 125, if she does have a bad weight cut and she's tired in that third round, Keisha's got good cardio. The thing there is that Keisha ain't finishing her in the third round. Keisha ain't finishing nothing, right? So even if Tracy Cortez just won the first two, took the third round off, she still figures to win a 29-28 decision. That's kind of the road I see this one going. So I got Cortez. I got Cortez by decision. Cortez by decision probably is juice. Let's see here what we got. Uh, Cortez by decision minus one twenty. I mean, she better than, better really than straight finish up minus anybody. Dog. I think I <laughs> you want to bet two sixty five? No, minus one twenty. Okay, Cortez, yeah, no, she's not a finisher. She's durable. Yeah, yeah, all right. Cortez, I'm just adding it to my little bets list. I haven't made any bets because I got absolutely sparked last week. So I wanted to talk to you, make sure I've got some sense. So, so far, I've got Aljeo, Munoz, considering Malcoon by sub. So it's 20 to 1. So, like, just the yeah, smallest little, little, little just a little, just a little taste. Right. And then uh, Cortez by decision. Uh, pretty much a pick on minus 120. All right. Next up. The people's main event, Cody Safdick, 
in my opinion. This is the fight I think most people are talking about. People have a lot of, uh, you know, opinions on this fight. We got Alexander Romanov taking on Juan Espino. Uh, Romanov, minus 130 favorite. Espino, plus 110. We've loved Alexander Romanov on this program. Guy's a damn polar bear. He just kind of barges forward. Big, big issues that I see in his game that we've kind of seen show it uh, rear its ugly head. Can't he? The guy can't check leg kicks. Um, we've seen it in both of his fights. Obviously against Delima last time out, he was really eating some leg kicks. Big, big problems. Um, and previous fight to that, he ate a couple, but it was you know most of the time he just barges forward. He's like a bear. He's very, very strong. And he just barges forward. You know, puts people in his element. Once he gets you to the ground, you know, he's, he's a 260-pound man who's putting every little bit of his weight on you. Espino's been doing the same thing, though. Obviously, Espino's older, 40 years old, but he's training at ATT with some of the best guys in the world. You see on his Instagram, he's with JDS. And, and I mean, the whole s- slew of characters that they've got over at ATT in their heavyweight division. Like, he's no shortage of bodies to work with. And I think you were kind of, like, disrespectful to this guy, you know, coming off of the Ultimate Fighter. I, I feel like you've never really been all that impressed by Juan Espino. But, Ooh. you know, w- watching the tape on him. Yeah, I remember you were saying that, like, you didn't like him. When uh, he first came into the, I think he went to like decision with like Ben Sassoli um, on well, the right, Ultimate but Fighter. He, but but he's he's fought such trash can opponents in the UFC. I've never bet against him. I Justin Frazier and Jeff yeah. Hughes. What a oh, here's hell the thing run. though. Here's the thing. I think the best win out of these two guys' records is what Juan Espino did to Hughes last time out. That was, I think, the best performance or the the highest level of competition that we've really seen from any of these guys we know with uh Romanov taking on Delima last time out like what do you do against Delima like he's gonna try to finish you early on it's just like if you can take the guy down you'll find a path to victory um and you know and his other honestly Juan Espino going back and watching his fights I'm pretty impressed the guy's a shit brick house like he doesn't look He's not, like, you know, big and burly in that sense. He's just a thick, big dude. I think he comes in at 255, 6'3". Like, the size shouldn't be too much too different in this spot. Um, he's just in better shape than uh, than Romanov. I wish I had seen at any time uh, Juan Espino throwing leg kicks. That doesn't seem to be what he does whatsoever, but I think it's dog or pass, man. And we love Romanov. And Romanov's 30 years old. I think he can make tons of improvements. And, you know, it's the heavyweight division. Five, Give this guy five years, he'll still be fighting, you know, still be fighting at this level, and, and he could have a higher ceiling than Juan Espino. But right now, I think it's Espino or pass. What about you? I mean, this is going to be another biased pick. Romanov's my guy. I'm a Romanov guy, so I'm going to bank on Romanov again. But yeah, listen, I fully understand that the issues here is that Romanov, is uh, he's got a sumo background, but he was also a Moldovan amateur wrestling champion. So he likes to wrestle. We know that about him. He likes to get these fights to the ground. When he gets these fights to the ground, he just works you. And he really lives up to this whole like King Kong moniker that, I mean, Romanov gets, he'll double fist pound you. He'll just keep smashing away. You've seen that in the Roque Martinez fight where it's like, he literally just smashed him into oblivion until Rope is just so tired that he gets that arm triangle choke. The Delima fight, yeah, he doesn't start off very good. Delima stuffs the first couple of takedowns, in fact. The leg kicks are starting to add up, but 
you know, this is what he does. He just, he just wears on you. And as soon as he wears on you and you start to fatigue and he gets on top of you, like he's not going away anywhere. But what's really troublesome in the Roque Martinez fight is like his positioning, like the way he's sitting on Roque's chest, you can tell he's not a great grappler. It's just, he's fighting a guy that's even worse grappler than him. Whereas like Juan Espino is a legitimate BJJ black belt. He's an accredited black belt. He's very slick. He's very precise. He's got it, right? As far as the wrestling goes, you got a Moldovan amateur wrestling champion against, you know, a, a Spanish wrestling champion. But, I mean, Espino can wrestle as well. I mean, this is a guy that's wrestled, you know, at a pretty high level, fairly high level, give a good account of himself. He's a big, thick dude. He can kind of do it all. He's got that wrestling. He's got that jiu-jitsu. That goes very, very far at heavyweight, where a lot of these guys aren't great wrestlers. They aren't great at grappling, and they don't got great cardio. And he, Espino's been able to use that very well. Comes on to the Ultimate Fighter, ends up winning the show. My problem is, is that even when he was on the Ultimate Fighter, I mean, he's already an, an elder statesman. I mean, that fight that you're referring to, the Ben Sassoli, right? He's 37 years old at the time that he's on the show against fighting Ben Sassoli to a two-round decision. You rewatch that fight as well. Like, it's only two rounds because it's an exhibition fight. But I couldn't find that. I was trying to watch that one. Yeah, it's just like, it's, it's, not, it's not the greatest look, right? So now you fight in the finals, or you get Maurice Green, right? It's like, okay, Maurice Green, a former glory kickboxer, six he foot seven, can't a takedown. He absolutely yeah, like, whooped. He whooped. He whooped him. Ta- that was like, Taylor Maurice just- Green has looked a lot better. Like, And I think that's why a lot of people, like, full out faded Maurice Green in, like, every single fight. It's like, watching that, he got absolutely molly whooped by Juan Espino. So what do you think happens to Maurice Green if he fought Romanov? Be serious here. He gets mollywhopped. It's, it's a non-competitive. It's a yeah. non-competitive fight. It's just a great style, right? So now, now you're in the finals of the Ultimate Fighter, and you get Justin Fraser. Like, like what? Nice little okay. two-piece combination to to knock that guy down, though. Yeah, and you know what? Shockingly enough, he was only a minus one seventy favorite over Justin Frazier, which is like, man, even though that he won his two fights on the Ultimate Fighter and he has this grappling base and he has this wrestling and he has all these different acumens, like they still didn't really think much of him. And then then he gets a Jeff Hughes fight. Now people are they they know what's up. But again, so you beat Justin Frazier, you get the ultimate fighter title put around your waist. And then he took two years off between thirty seven and thirty nine. Comes back and beats Jeff Hughes. Like, bro, you're you're just letting time pass you by. You're letting the best years of your career pass you by. Now he's 40, and now he's a heavyweight contender. You go online, and everyone's talking about, like, this is the next guy that's going to end up fighting for the title. It's like, he's, well, I he's didn't 40. Say that. I didn't no, say that. No, not you. Not, I never said you did. I said you go online, and it's like, gargle, gargle, gargle. <laughs> Juan Espino is the next great submission machine. I saw one guy compare him to Fabricio Verdun. And say we've never we haven't seen a ground guy like this since Fabrizio Verdun. Fabrizio Verdun beat Fedor. He beat Alistair Overeem. He beat he beat all the best guys. He fought all the best guys. Why? Espino's coming wins on Jeff Hughes and Justin Frazier. Those are his two wins over the last three years. He's 40 years old. He's training at ATT. Who'd you say with? JDS? Big fucking deal. But I'll tell you why. No, they got Jair Zinho, Rosenstrike. Like, I mean, they've no, got know, they've got guys there. They've got Andrei Arlovski. Like, there's a wealth of talent, a wealth. Yeah, and looking at who Romanov trains with is just like some random guys in Moldova. Not that that, yeah, that, that may not like, matter whatsoever, shed. but. No, but it might too, you know. He's training like in a shed in Moldova with nobody. And so I, I agree with your assessment. I just, I don't know that I want to jump all the way on Espino. So what do we like out of Romanov? Okay, these are the things that I like out of Romanov. One. 10 years younger. You can't deny that. He's 30 years mm-hmm. old versus 40 years old. 
He's coming to his own. He's getting confident. He shows up in great shape for the heavyweight division. But the big thing here is that the guy's got cardio. And he seems to be a very good athlete for a dude that comes in at 260 pounds. He moves very well on his feet, right? But pro- he knocks out Dalim in the first round. Sure, the Roke fight is late into the second, dude. It's nine minutes and 22 seconds into the fight. Mm-hmm. Late in the second. His cardio looked impeccable. That fight was Sultan Mirzaliev on the regional scene, which is a third-round TKO. This guy is not going anywhere. He just smash, 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 smash until you can't keep up anymore. Is he a good striker? No. Is he is he a great grappler? No. He's a pretty solid wrestler, and he's got a good gas tank, and that'll take you places in the heavyweight division. And so how does he match up with Espino? Well, let's say wrestling nullifies itself. If he gets taken down by Espino and Espino's on top, we are. I, I know you're going with Espino, I am in some trouble. I do not want to be on my back with Juan Espino on top of me. It would be a massive, massive problem. But the, the lower center of gravity, good hips, you know, quick mobile guy with a wrestling base. I could see him going out there and stuffing a few of these takedowns, keeping it standing. Now, as far as standing, they're not great strikers. However, Alexander Romanov is a better striker than Juan Espino. Is he? The fight does stay, I, I think so. I think he's got faster hands. He throws in combination. And I think he's got the better cardio. And cardio is what it's going to come down to. Is that I can tell you, Romanov's fought twice deeper into the rounds, and his cardio looked good. Whereas with Espino, it's like he's finishing these fights pretty quick. Mm-hmm. I don't know that his cardio is that good. He's 40 years old. He's fought effectively 3 minutes and 48 seconds in the last three years. That, that's ring time. In the last three years, he's got less than five minutes worth of actual octagon time. So you can train at ATT. You can do all these things. But again, we talk about this all the time. Father time, undefeated. If he goes out there and doesn't finish in the first round, are you confident that he fights into the second and third round no problem? No, you're not confident because you've not seen it. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm going to say I, I give the Romanov cardio advantage. I give him a slight boxing advantage. I'm not sure about the boxing advantage. I haven't been yeah, very – I like maybe. I like Romanov and, like, man, he looks – if Juan Espino just knows how to throw leg kicks, we you go through all the tape and it's like he just doesn't throw them. But that is a serious – like going through yeah, the Rocky Martinez fight, he hits it a bit there. And then I remember, like, following through onto the next fight – being like, let's see if we if he's fixed that. And Delima was absolutely chewing those legs up. He does not defend against them. It's a big problem. And I guess when you're a wrestler, when you're a freaking polar bear like uh, like Romanov is, I guess the idea is like, okay, I'm cool with people throwing leg kicks on me because I want to take them down anyway. If they're throwing leg kicks, then I can just barge forward and and, and drive them to the mat. It kind of works out, but. Somebody's gonna really exploit that hole in his game unless he picks unless he uh like he doesn't check it, he doesn't defend anything. Someone's gonna really fuck him up. And I don't know if that's Juan Espino because I haven't seen it from him. But uh it's a big concern for me, and it's obviously a big step up, honestly, for both guys. It's a hell of a fight. I don't think either one of us is like overly confident in this whatsoever. You like Romanov, I'm gonna lean towards Espino. I don't have any money on it for for the record. Yeah, my last thing there is that when you look at Romanov, it's like Roque Martinez is a striker. So Roque Martinez throwing leg kicks is not unheard of. Uh, Marcos Rogério de Lima is a Muay Thai black belt. He likes to throw leg kicks. He's predominantly a striker. I'm not shocked that those guys try to kick his leg. Juan Espino is not a striker. And so coming in with some game plan of like, I'm going to kick him because strikers have kicked him, it's not going to translate the same, dude. He's not. He doesn't have the same leg kicks. 
nor does he have the ability to go out there and line him up 10 times. Oh, and then the last thing is, that's why I was saying, did, did, did it look like Romanov? Did it look like the kicks were hurting him? I didn't did say, like I didn't land? say that Juan Espino was, was going to, I, I didn't say that Juan Espino was going to throw leg kicks. I was saying, if I had seen him throw leg kicks with all of the other things in this matchup, I would definitely be betting Juan Espino, but I haven't seen him do it. So how can I expect him to do something I've never seen him do before? Yeah, uh, this 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 could be a slopper, an absolute slopper. But your one point that I will a hundred percent agree on, no questions asked, is uh, people's main event for sure, dude. I absolutely cannot wait for this fight. It's going to be great times. No, no, yeah, it's basically the fight of the. It's my favorite fight on the card, to be perfectly Why honest. Why is it on the prelims of a shit show card? Like this should be co-main event. You need to promote heavyweights, man. Promote this fight. Yeah, make heavyweights great again. Um, all right, we got uh, Tony Gravely taking on Anthony Burchak, minus 340, Gravely, plus 280, Burchak, who you got, Cody? I'm going to go Tony Gravely. I think that his chain wrestling probably wins him out the day. With Anthony Burchak, no doubt about it that this is a guy that wrestled at Arizona State University. He knows how to wrestle, but again, like, I hate trying to drum. I know you've always called me way back in the day, like, an ageist. Like, ah, oh, Cody's never betting on the old guy. And it's like... It, you it, just, you just shit down. on Juan Espino because he was 40 in the heavyweight division when, like, everyone fights until they're 40 in the heavyweight division. So, yeah, continue, yeah, though. It's yeah, like, that's, you, that's, you've, you're definitely not an ageist anymore there, pal. No, no, you're right. <laughs> and we've got uh, Andre Orlovsky, 42. I'm going to look to fade him. Al-Hassan, almost 36. Definitely didn't like that, although I ended up going with him. Espino, 40. Going to have to fade that. Jessica Panay, we'll talk about later, 38. Looking to fade. And uh, now we got Anthony Burchak. It's like he's seen better days. The fact that he made it back to the UFC, I thought was actually pretty, uh, you know, incredible. And then again, he's only 34 years old. It's just the, the, the wear and tear, the going out there and the fighting for these long periods of time against tough level competition, the weight cuts, the grind, the wrestling, all these things are just haven't gone good for him. As far as fighting in Japan goes, he had the wrestling advantage over all these guys. It was the rule set that that beat him, you know? Uh, how you finish up is super important in Rise and not exactly how you start. They're not looking at, oh, you won the first two rounds, Anthony. So he's losing these split decisions and fights that he otherwise should have probably should have won. It, it, it's that fight with Gustavo Lopez, right? Gustavo Lopez figures to be more of a boxer. His takedown defense, not exactly great. We've seen him exposed in that element. He's just kind of, you know, a mid-level guy at best. And he chin checks him, hurts him, takes his back, chokes him out. Burchak had absolutely nothing to offer. And I'm taking a grappling match after that, caught in a guillotine choke. And so here's the problem with Anthony Burchak. He's a BJJ black belt, and yet submitting him, guys do it all the time. doesn't seem like it's the most difficult thing in the world, right? He's a, he's a, he's a natural wrestler, wrestled in college, right? He was up two takedowns to Gustavo Lopez. He got taken down twice by Delano Lopez. Like, his takedown defense is spotty, man. So it's like, okay, well, what does he do? Well, maybe he's going to, you know, go out there and land his hands, but... I don't know. I honestly just think that Anthony Burchak's a guy that's just kind of puzzled out there. And with Tony Gravely, uh, you know, he's got good cardio, but beyond that, it's just like he just sticks to the same game plan, which is like wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. His fight with Brett Johns is extremely entertaining. These guys went back and forth position for position, and you just kind of saw that like in a really taxing fight like that, it does take its toll on him, but he's just working a tremendous amount. That's the way to beat him. It's just like grind him down, tire him. But there's no doubt about it, man. He scored five takedowns on Brett Johns. That's impressive. Then his last fight against Geraldo De Freitas, again, in the third round, he did get tired. But seven takedowns land against Geraldo De Freitas. It's like the work's already done. Maybe he's tired in the third, but like the work's already been done. And that is what I kind of expect to happen here with Anthony Burchak. I think that he's just going to go out there. He's going to take him down. He's going to chain wrestle him. And he's just going to continuously keep trying to take him down, hold position. He's faster than him. 
He's got a little more left in the tank. He's the better offensive wrestler. And as far as cardio goes, like, Burchak's cardio is not great himself. So even if he's in his position in the third round where he's tired, I don't see him necessarily going out there and getting finished. The problem is the minus 325 price tag. You know, it's not exactly the best price tag going 3-1, to one, Tony Gravely. But I think that's very much everyone's writing off Burchak. We didn't think he'd make it back to the UFC. He does. They give him a very, very winnable fight. And Gustavo Lopez, he looks awful. Where does he go beyond this? Where does, where does he go? How does he progress? With Tony Gravely, I think that he's coming into his own, and he's one of these fun guys. Now, I'm rocking the DK hat, so I'll drop this one for you. But you and I, we, we barely talk about DraftKings anymore at all. I mean, for reasons. Uh, but, I mean, like, I think you want Tony Gravely on your lineup, man. I think he's got the capability to go out there and score 10 takedowns because he'll get the takedown. Burchak's BJJ black belt. He's good enough to just get his way back up, and he's going to get taken right back down. He is a high price tag. I would imagine three twenty five would probably translate to what ninety two hundred dollars in DraftKings. Um, but yeah. still, it's like I think that that rinse repeat with the offensive wrestling is a key here. And if he can tire out Burchak late and maybe get a submission, that'd be a little cherry on top. That seems to make sense. Uh, yeah, I didn't have the DraftKings pricing in front of me. I'm just pulling it up here. I imagine Tony Gravely would be. Uh considerably more under-owned compared to other people in that range. Let's see what he is on the old DraftKings app. But you're thinking, yeah, you're thinking lots of takedowns here, right? Yeah, that would be the key is that, you again, you've seen him in his... uh, Brett Johns is a judo black belt, and the guy that wrestled in the Welsh team, like the the world team, like, man, taking him down is a problem. And yet you see Tony Gravely, he's really quick. You know, he trains at American Top Team. He's got a great setup to his shot. He's really athletic. His top control isn't great, and that's what allows opponents to get back up. But when you get back up, he just takes you right back down. He reminds me of a, like a little more refined and more willing, willing to wrestle version of Miles John. Yeah, the guys like that will rack up points. And racking up points, I mean, I'm not looking for the most spectacular performance. I'm looking for a winning performance, and that would be the way here. Go against Burchak, take him down. He's been spending a lot of time working on his grappling, but it's not translating. Again, only 34 years old. And, but Tony Gravely, I mean, I should say he's no spring chicken. Ah, he's 29. He is yeah. a spring chicken. He's just going to rinse repeat with these takedowns until he eventually gets his hand lifted or he picks up a third-round submission victory. Uh, my last point being a lot of people have been like, hey, man, he's tired in that Geraldo Freitas fight. He's tired in that Brett Johns fight. He puts in a lot of work in those fights. Those guys mm-hmm. make him work the whole time. I think Burchak's a little more accepting of what's happening, and for that reason, Gravely will have a little more success. So sign me up for Gravely, and again, I think he'd be a decent DK play as well. Yeah, he's the most expensive guy on the slate. He's 9400 but... You know, he's last fight out against DeFreitas, seven takedowns, 10, 10 minutes of control time, or, to, or almost 11 minutes of control time. Uh, not too many significant strikes, but when you're getting seven takedowns against him, five takedowns against uh, against Johns, what, I mean, that that, that definitely get, adds up, and this is, a, this is a fight that is lined up for him to win. What were you saying, sorry? Uh, just click real quick. What did he score in the DeFreitas point for DK points? 110 points. Okay, so th- there's my there's my point right there. He landed like 29 significant strikes. He hardly landed any 49 strikes. significant strikes, seven takedowns, 86 strikes, because they, they changed the scoring since we used to do it on the show here. Right. But yeah, almost yeah. 11, uh, 10 minutes and 55 seconds of control time. So that, that'll that get a shot. That's what you want, baby. That's At 100, want. Yeah, 110 points. No, people are not going to own them, but you're going to have to find underdogs that, uh, you know, to fill out that roster, which is a little easier said than done. Um, anyway, let's move on. This next one, I got no opinion. We got Josie Ann Nunez taking on Zara, 
Uh, Fairn, minus 125. Nunez, plus 105. Fairn, you got got a hot take here? No, I really don't have a hot take. Uh, I'm going to retape this one just to make sure because, yeah, it's like, where where do you really go with it? You got Zara Fairn on one hand. She's looked obviously very, very bad in the UFC. But, I mean, you got to give her one thing. She fought Megan Anderson at 145 pounds. Not exactly a a tough fight. Considering there's, there's like, what, 545 pounders in the entire division? Megan Anderson happens to be, like, the second or third best one. It's a tough go. She mm-hmm. ends up getting triangle choked. That in itself is even a bigger problem. You're getting submitted by her. No problem. Then you get Felicia Spencer. Uh-oh, they gave you the number two girl in the division. Like, there's just not enough bodies to to, to go around. So so what do you do? I mean, where do you fight? And and also, how good really realistically is she? So you take those fights off the table. She beats Isabel Bardurek, right, UFC veteran. She has also got a uh, win over Carrie Hughes. And then that, um, I always pronounce this wrong. I always call her. Was that Isabella de Padua that you meant? No, Badurik. Who is um, that? There's, that's Isabel. a UFC veteran? What's the name? No, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, no, you're right. I'm wrong. No, no, no. Yeah, no, I'm fucking totally right on this one. She fought Alexandra Albu back in the day. Who? Badurik. Trust me. Oh, I my know, God. Buddy, I gotta. I just I see the name and it's just like it's my how my brain works. It's like that 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 UFC veteran. Oh my I god! Tell you she what event? One fight in the UFC. The, the yeah, but she's a UFC veteran, Paul. Did I did oh not say god. she was a UFC veteran. Did I say she was a world beater? I did not say she was a world beater. She got she, she got the Max Max Roshkoff, uh treatment. One fight in the UFC, finished by Albu, and then <laughs> never invited back. Like that's usually they'll give you two fights. It must have, yeah. I, I can't remember that fight whatsoever. It must have been truly dreadful. Yeah, I mean, she's no good. She's a Polish, I mean, I wouldn't even say she was a prospect at the time. But uh, yeah, yeah, not, not exactly her best look. She made it to the second round against, against Albu, right? Won a fight against an undefeated fighter, 5-0-1 after that. And then fought Zara Farron. And Zara Farron just walked right through her, man. I mean, she knocked her out a minute 55 in the first round. Beat her up pretty good. That fight's at 141 pounds. But it's like, if you look at that, it's like, okay, Farron doesn't look totally bad. That split decision loss to John Kavanaugh's sister, I always mispronounce this. It's not Sinead. Sinead. It's uh, Sinead. Sinead. You're Irish. You would know. Yeah. Sinead Kavanaugh. Bro, she got robbed. She got straight up robbed in Kavanaugh's own backyard, essentially, because it's Bama. They're trying to look to promote their, uh, their, their local star as opposed to European star, as opposed to the French fighter Zara Farron. But she got robbed against Kavanaugh, which it wasn't that bad. She beat up uh, Badurik, who would be like a higher level opponent considering what we're facing here. She got the win over Carrie. He was like, like not looking terrible. And then she gets Megan Anderson, Felicia, Felicia Spencer. So they, again, they, they really did her absolutely no favors. This Josiah Nunes, at least this figures to be a more winnable fight because you've got someone that's also not fought in anybody. The only notable fighter on her record is Taylor Santos, which is eight years ago. And she lost that fight. She's only 27 years old but it's just, it's kind of misleading she made her pro debut in 2013 right so like she fought twice in 2013 took two years off fought once in 2015 took three years off fought once in 2018 against an 0 6 opponent and then just comes back in 2019 fought three times fought once last year so it, i just don't what do you expect out of her right there's not enough that you can really go by no. as far as tape study goes there's not a whole lot that you can physically look at, so you're just you're just guessing. I looked at her I like a lot of people. shadow boxing yeah. on Instagram, and I was just like, I wasn't too impressed. But just like, what what can I really go off of here? It's it was a very very tough because like yeah, Farron's got absolutely dominated, but if they are against 
two of the uh, you know two of the elite at 145 pounds, a division that I'm not sure really exists anymore. But obviously, coming down to 135, yeah, it's just it's really tough to have a hot take on this one. Well, that's exactly it. So just to cap things off, when you look at uh, Jocelyn, right, it's just like, okay, Jocelyn Nunez, there's not not enough tape to go by, right? With Farron, you discredit those two losses. The the footage that you can see doesn't look too bad. Now, Farron has two fights in the... People are just auto-fading. That's what this comes down to. They're just just fetting Farron because I've seen her and she's no good. I'd rather just take the shot on, on Nunez, right? So Farron, both those fights are at 145 pounds. Now she's coming down to 135. This would be much better for her. She should have been fighting 35 anyways. This this would be a better look for her. As far as the striking goes, I think she probably has a slight advantage. She's got to hope she doesn't get taken down. And then the last little key here, again, I'm going to try to retape as much as I can out of this. The last little key here is that uh, Zara Farron's 5'8 with a 72-inch reach. Didn't look totally out of place at 145. Jocelyn Nunes is 5'2 with a 67-inch reach. 5'2, Paul. Where'd you get that number from? Where'd you get the number? Because on Tapology, they don't have any uh, anything for for uh, Nunes. Check out Fight Metric, though. UFC oh, Fight stats. Metric's got it. Good. Yeah, exactly. I was wondering so about good. that because I know that Farron is super, super long. And it looked, when I was just looking at pictures and looking on Instagram and stuff, I was just like, it looks, do, we, do I see some T-Rex arms? And I guess maybe I was seeing some T-Rex arms. You, you do. So Farron's six inches taller and has a five-inch reach advantage. Not only that, from what we have seen on tape, she's a better striker. I mean, Nunez, what you see on tape is she just marches forward and kind of lets those hands go. I think Farron's got the advantage. The one thing I don't know is I don't know if Nunez has some great grappling game. And with Farron, like, when she's on her back, she's totally a fish out of water, man. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it, am I worried? Yeah, but like very reluctantly with very little to go off of and mostly just speculation, it's a docker pass. And Zara Farron is your underdog at plus 105. So that's where I would be sitting. But uh, yeah, if you're not, if you're a non degen, the fact that you're watching our show, you're probably a degen. If you're a non degen, you don't bet this fight. If you want a little action, I'm thinking that you would just take that underdog side and go Zara Farron. Hope that this fight stays standing. And hope that, again, if Nunez had fought Megan Anderson and Felicia Spencer, I'm telling you, it would not have gone good. So, so Farron should have a a fair shake finally. Or maybe just watch this live, see if Farron gets taken down. Or if, uh, if Nunez, since we are kind of, you know, question mark about what her grappling game is like, or if she's going to be shooting for takedowns. Maybe you get a sense early on in the first two and a half minutes or so of, you know, if if she stuffs a takedown early or something like that, maybe you can get on board. Um, but yeah, it doesn't sound like we really love well, that. That doesn't sound like yeah, we really yeah. love that spot whatsoever. What were you gonna say? Yeah. So the last thing there, when I was like, maybe she's Josie Ann Nunez. Her camp's called Strikers House, and she has six knockouts and zero submissions. <laughs> so this is gonna be a striker versus striker. One's gonna move forward and have a six inch region disadvantage. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go fair, but I think, I think we've hit all the points that we possibly could here. 100%. All right. Next up, we got Lupita Godinez taking on Jessica Pane minus two sixty five Godinez plus two twenty five Pane went back and watched Lupita Godinez's fight against Vanessa Demopoulos <laughs> and not going to lie. It was a five round fight. She looked, she started getting banged up a bit in like rounds four and five. Obviously, both of those, like, that's a freaking war, man. Props oh, to yeah, those, prop fight. to those ladies. That was a great fight. And the first three rounds, honestly, 
I like Godinez looked pretty good. Striking is uh, her her boxing seems pretty crisp. She packs a bit of a punch for a 115 pound woman. And uh, minus 265 is, is obviously super wide, but you know we're talking about Penne here, who hasn't fought in years. Obviously, she got screwed by uh, by Usada uh, and all that type of jazz. But stand up game, pretty marginal. Um, she's more or less a grappler. That is what obviously usually her best path to victory. Godinez does get taken down late in that fight, is in a precarious situation against Demopolis. But we're talking round five when she was really, really tired. Otherwise, everything kind of checked out, and we're only dealing with a three-round fight here. I wouldn't be surprised to see Lupita Godinez knock out uh, Penne. I actually am more attracted to the under- Two and a half rounds at plus 255, which I know we're talking about a women's strawweight fight. What are you even thinking? And like Godinez by knockout, I think was like plus 400, plus 500, I think I've seen around there. That's where I would probably go to. I don't think much of Penne at this point. She's obviously been out for some of the best years potentially of her career. She was getting finished by some of the elite in the division. Godinez seems to check out. I'm pretty impressed, and I think that the you know sky's the limit for her uh, in this division. Maybe not championship caliber, but I think we we have a little bit of a you know rising prospect who's going to show up and shine here. What do you think? Yeah, dude, I completely agree, and I think that most people probably are looking at that specifically that knockout prop, and yeah, you can get a decent price out of it. Then why not? One thing with Lupina Godinez is yeah, she's she's definitely got the striking advantage. She's definitely got a technical boxing advantage. And with Jessica Penne, is like she doesn't, she's never worn damage very well. She gets hit. I'm not going to say she's got a big schnoz. You can make out that decision for yourself. But like when she gets hit, it blows up, man. And once it blows up, it bleeds. She's got to leave her mouth open because she can't breathe out of her nose. And uh, as her mouth's open, she's there to get teed off on. Now, and she's getting knocked out by Joanny and Jacek and Jessica Andrade. That's, that's no problem, man. Jessica, uh, Joanny and Jacek took three rounds late into the third to take her out. Jessica Andrade took you know, into the second round to take her out. It's not like she's going out there and getting punched out in the first round. But again, this is 115 pounds, man. It's like, these girls don't have a ton of power. Those girls got a lot of volume. Jessica Andrade got a lot of power. But it's like, yeah, they're hitting her and they're hurting her. To take a four-year-long layoff due to USADA, to come back at age 38, I just don't know how much realistically she would have improved. Now, I get that you can make the whole Lions MMA and, like you said, uh, Dominic Cruz and... You know, he's one of these guys that's able to come off these layoffs. Like it, it's it's different, man. Like she's been operating an OnlyFans, not been, you know, commentating on world class fights and being in the gym and doing all these different things. She has spent a lot of time in, in the gym. She's gonna come in good shape. I just think at 38 years old, it's a tough task coming back. Now, originally they bring her back, they're like, you know what? We're gonna give you Jody Escabel. Shit, man. That's that's the UFC saying we're really sorry about this long suspension. We're going to give you Jody Escobar. Fight gets canceled, and they actually rebook the Jody Escobar fight. That's how much they're committed to allowing this girl to succeed. Only she pulls out due to an injury. So now they give her hand a Goldie. This is a very winnable fight for her. Mm-hmm. Right? She can win this fight. She can lose this fight. We talked about that one not that long ago. And we were both kind of like, hey, this is this is a winnable fight for Penne, even though she's a little bit long in the tooth for this division. But She's long in the tooth, but you know what? I mean, her striking is more, uh, rep- uh, is more refined, is more polished. Her grappling game is certainly way better. Her takedown offense is probably not good enough to take down a strong girl like Hannah Goldie, but Hannah Goldie is extremely young and raw and not extremely talented just yet. It's like she's she's there to expose, and this is this is the type of fight that you can make something happen. And then Hannah Goldie, the first time test positive for COVID, she's out of Florida. It's no surprise. 
And then the second time she pulls out due to injury, so you're getting Lupita Godinez on short notice. And now it's like, ooh, suddenly it's not a, a really a favor anymore. I mean, with Jody Escobel, she's on her way out. With Hannah Goldie, she had one fight in the UFC, really didn't look good. With Lupita Godinez, yeah, debut. And yeah, she's making it on short notice, but it's like there's a lot that you can like out of Lupita Godinez. And typically when you win the LFA title, that's like your UFC contract. Right? You mm-hmm. know you're getting a deal or you're very close to a deal once you win. So no doubt about it that she would have been in that spot. But actually, Lupita Godinez uh, from Mexico and now lives, trains full-time out of uh, Vancouver, BC, right? And I'm actually very familiar with her. She shows up in, in BC and coming from Mexico, she already had that boxing base, but they've really gone a long way to show up the other talent, right? Give her some takedown defense. Give her some grappling. And she's really coming to her own. So I watched her live at this um, uh, BTC. It's technically Burlington Training Center. Weird name for a promotion. But this BTC 8 Eliminator, she takes on Lindsey Garbutt. And again, it's for the BTC title, a five-round fight. Lindsey Garbutt is also a professional boxer and challenged for a world title in China. Like, had been around the world, had decent hands on her. Godinez just beat her up, walked her down, beat her up, made a real believer out of me. Five-round mm-hmm. cardio, looking good. I like what I see. When she signed to fight Vanessa Demopoulos, who is hot, you know? She came in as like a very slight favorite. And I put a bunch of money on Godinez on the basis of, I see what this girl can do. Keep this fight standing. Box her up. The first three rounds, I'm, we're dancing. The fourth and fifth round, you're correct. She does tire down. But did her grappling look off? No. And you're taking on a legitimate grappler in, in Vanessa DeMoss. Round five, she, she would- gets, you know, she's really tired. She gets mounted. It's not the greatest look at the end of it. She, that's when she gets banged up the most. But yeah, against Panay here. We're dealing with a three-round fight. We don't have to worry about championship rounds in this spot. It's just good for Godinez that she's even had that experience. She's not going to have to do that for uh, at least three or four fights at this point. Yeah, at the I very least. Vanessa, Vanessa DeMopoulos' fight with uh, Sam Hughes, right? She loses the first three rounds and, uh, and gets boxed up. She's not a very good boxer. Let's first and foremost admit that pretty much anybody can box up Vanessa DeMopoulos. It's that she keeps coming at you. She's hyper-aggressive. She's got a really good ground game. So she loses the first three rounds to Sam Hughes. The fourth round, the second it hit the ground, inverted triangle, like like duh. With Godinez, she's mounted in the fifth round. She's losing. She's tired. It's like she she understands the fundamentals. She knows how to keep herself safe, and that's mm-hmm. in the that's in the fifth round. This is a three round fight. I think she's got a significant significant boxing advantage. I think your takedown defense is good enough to just stuff the takedowns from Penne, keep this fight standing, and just paint a paint a picture on her. Right? Does she get that knockout? If she did, I would say it's going to be a third round knockout, and so I would chase that third round finish prop, which would be. Much, much, much better. Um, but beyond that, I think straight up just Godinez. And she's one of your biggest favorites on the card. I actually do agree with it. Uh, I think this is a tough fight for Penny, and I think that Godinez is going to be here for a long time. Last last thing that I want to say is that um, with Godinez straight up, and I'm not even just trying to disrespect anybody, but if, if she was fighting if she was fighting uh, Josiane Nunez, I, I would pick her. And she's two weight classes lower. They're both five foot two, by the way. But it's like, this This is a girl that can box and is fighting in the proper weight class, 115 pounds. Josiane just bulldogs forward, lets her hands go, is also 5'2", fights at 135. Like, what are you doing? I think that there's a lot that you can, like, Nunez has got, there's no upside. She's not going, she might drop down to 125, hopefully gets down to 115 at some point. But beyond this, like, I don't know where she goes. Like, Godinez, she, she could really form into a, a, a decent title challenger, hopefully at 115. And if not a title challenger, someone that fights in the top five, top ten, 
So uh, I think there's a lot that you could be excited for out of her. And uh, honorary Canadian, I'm totally going to back that one. Listen, she could realistically is one or two wins from being the best Canadian on the UFC roster. So uh, Mexico, what are you talking about? She's Canadian, baby. Let's roll with it. Lupita round three at Bet365. I'm not sponsoring the show whatsoever. It's just I happen <coughs> to open it up and it's not on best fight odds. Their round props don't end up over there. 16 to one, Lupita round three. That would be my move because I would say tire Pene out, get the nose busted, get her breathing heavy, pin her up against the cage and just unload with the flurry. That's the way to do it. That's the way to go. And I think, uh, you know, Pene could be in trouble. So instead of just taking up that Lupina by TKO, I think you go for that third round prop. And if you thought for whatever reason you didn't like it, take the second round and the third round pop. I don't think it happens in the first if it happens at all. I think it's going to happen late. You're really going to have to put some work in, break her down, tire her out, hurt her bloody her up, then take her out. That should happen in the third if it's going to happen. So 16 to 1. I know you were looking at that 20 to 1 submission prop. I actually like this third round DKO prop a lot better at 16 to 1. Yeah, I mean, I do too, to be perfectly honest. I'll probably still end up on on something here. But uh, maybe I uh, I don't know exactly how I'm going to approach it, but that's my take on it. I think Godnez, I just think that there's more. Of, I obviously can see the fight going to decision. It's women's women's strawweight division, but I think we've like over amplified these odds here. I could definitely see Godinez getting a finish in this spot. Finally, we've got Austin Hubbard taking on Dakota Bush. Minus 185 Hubbard, plus 160 Bush. Bush coming in on a very, very short notice here. Uh, who you got here, Cody? Yeah, I mean, Dakota Harry Bush. Like, talk about the worst name in the UFC, man. Come on. I'm hoping he loses really quick, maybe twice, and then gets cut, and I don't have to hear about it ever again. Um, honestly, Austin Hubbard's actually <laughs> – I don't know who he's pissed off, but look at this for a minute, right? So, Davi Ramos, it's like ADCC world champion, you know, highly skilled on the ground, and he gives a really good account of himself. Then he gets, he gets Marco Madsen. He's an he's a Olympic bronze medalist wrestler, probably the best wrestler in the division, right? Then he gets Max Roshkoff. By the way, he did really good against Marco Madsen. I mean, cardio checked out, kept getting up when he was getting taken down, extended him into the third round, won the third round. It's just, you know, these wrestlers, they're not, it's not a great look. Max Roshkoff, dude, the guy wrestled D1 in North Carolina. He's a BJJ black belt under Robert Drysdale. Total fraud, as it turns out. And then he gets Joe Selecki, who's a BJJ black belt and like a pretty damn good wrestler. It's like they've, they've literally done him almost no favors. The only time he took on a striker was Kyle Prepolek, and, and he looked good in that fight. I mean, the leg kick whole thing aside, he just marches him down. But what, what he's built his game on is this like counter wrestling game where you can take him down, but he works his way back up. When he works his way back up, he just pressures you. Training out an elevation fight team, he's got really good cardio. And we keep talking about Drew Dober and Justin Gaethje and the, all the bodies that he has to work at. At this weight class, he's really making a lot of improvements. He's getting better. The cardio is top-notch, and that's probably his best weapon. His striking is okay. He's a big body, but it's the fact that in the third round, he's just as fresh in the first round that he, he starts to tire guys down. Because a lot of his opponents are wrestlers, they're opting to just wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. It's a very tiring game plan. Mark Madsen, I mean, when he went to the UFC Performance Institute, the, the doctors there, the personal trainers, they all went on record to be like, this dude is a freak athlete, a little bit older, but one of the absolute finest athletes that's ever walked in these doors. All of his training partners talk about how he's relentless, will not tire. He's on record going before that fight being like, cardio's my best weapon, and Hubbard absolutely broke him down. The Roshkov fight, 
fucking guy quit. That's how tired he was because he knew Austin Hubbard's not going anywhere. And the Joe Selecki fight, he, he got submitted before it really started to get going. But again, I mean, this is all stuff you go back to the drawing board and make some improvements. And I think Hubbard is. He's 29 years old. He's 5'10", which is decent. He's got a good frame for the weight class, and he just keeps chugging along. So they match him up with Nathan Levy initially. Nathan Levy, by the way, is a fucking really good wrestler, wrestler grappler. He's getting replaced by Dakota Bush. And once you note it, Dakota Bush is, is, is a wrestler grappler. The difference there is that Dakota Bush is half the wrestler grappler that Nathan Levy was. And Nathan Levy wasn't on Joe Selecki and Marco Madsen's. You know what I mean? Like, he's proven, Austin Hubbard's proven that against the high-end guys, he can still give an okay account of himself. Not so much against Selecki, but we're going to give him a pass there. It's like he's fought in this mold and he's done good. Him against Nathan Levy was going to be the same thing. He was going to get taken down. He needed to work his way back up. He needed to put some pressure on this guy. He needed to break him down and hopefully take him out late or at least win two of the three rounds. With Dakota Bush coming in on like a week's notice, I don't think he's going to get the take. If he does, I, I expect our man to wig his way back up. Um, but if he doesn't get him down, Hubbard's just going to piece him up, beat him up, break him down. And This is another guy that could I could see him winning a decision, but I could see him hitting one of these third-round finish props as well. Like He doesn't go anywhere. He keeps coming down and he starts marching down on you. And one thing, you can go back and watch Jaleel Willis versus Dakota Bush. Jaleel Willis is a wrestler as well. And you saw when Dakota Bush had to take on someone who knew how to wrestle, he's, he's largely lost. Like, he doesn't really know what to do after that. But I think that's what's going to happen here against Hubbard. He's going to come in, shoot a couple takedowns. If he gets stuffed, left to resort to his striking. But Hubbard's got a real good chin on him. He marches forward. I mean, when you're a training partner with Dover and Justin Gaethje, like, you're only going to get better. And his striking has gotten a lot better. So you need to take him down and control him. I don't think Bush is going to be able to do that for 15 minutes. So Hubbard eventually finds a way, breaks him down, either takes a decision or takes one of these third round finishes, you know, late in the fight. Um, but at minus 175, I don't think it's the worst line going. So uh, as of this moment right now, I, I've got Austin Hubbard. Breaking news, Cody. Ricardo oh, Ramos fight dropped off. Oh, Ricardo Ramos oh, COVID protocol. So there goes Aljeo. Who, if he ends up somehow staying on the card, becomes, I would imagine, because they'll find some absolute schlub hanging around, right? And LJ yeah, on, really on DraftKings, really he's 8,000. I mean, I was going to play LJ on DraftKings anyway at 8,000. Now he's going to be 8,000 probably against some some scrub off of the street. We'll see. Obviously, they haven't. I think it just got reported by John Morgan 13 minutes ago. Um Obviously, we're we're not live right now, so it's obviously more than 13 minutes ago for anybody listening right now. But just wanted to let you know, as I deleted him off of my bets page, yeah, sad, that's sad times indeed. Um, yeah, if I'm the UFC's matchmaker, which clearly I'm not, I'm picking up the phone and calling Billy Q. I want Billy Q, Bill Aljo. That would be a fun fight. That would be a fun fight. All right, we are just about out of time. But before we go, Cody, hit him with the PRP. Okay, so hit them with the PRP. We're going to go with, sorry, let me just bring out my odds because we got a couple underdogs with like plus, it's like such short underdog price. We're going to go with Robert Whitaker. We're going to go with Dracker Close is the underdog. Chase Sherman, dog number two. Razak Al-Hassan, Alex Munoz, dog number three. Aljeo's off. Uh, Austin Hubbard. Uh, Tracy Cortez, Alexander Romanov, Lupina Godinez, Bartos Fabinski, Zara Farn, dog number four, and Tony Gravely. So, again, we're looking at, what, 12 fights as of right now, four underdogs. Uh, I'm feeling good about that part. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I've been trying to tape study this Bellator card. So like, I, there's still a little more work I find on my end that needs to be done in this UFC. I'm pretty, I don't see myself switching in these plays. It's a confidence level thing, right? I don't mm -hmm. think I'm going to watch anything that's going to cause me to switch the play. It depends. Who do I like the most? That's a top ticket guy. Again, if you guys know me by this point, I'm looking for these top ticket guys. I'm looking for two or three guys. They're not going to fucking shit in the pie. We started off the year. We have the Joaquin Buckley's. We had the Munir Lazes. Those guys are killing that top ticket. That's what we're trying to avoid. The last four weeks, we're hitting all of our top ticket guys. Bellator is the exception because Koti Yamauchi did get robbed. He was a top ticket guy. Um, but again, you're looking for your most confident level of guys. Who are your most confident plays in this card? I don't know. There's a lot of variables. But yeah, I mean, I got one of these feelings that we can turn this into a profitable card. 12 fights as of right now. Hopefully not a whole lot falls off. I also want to apologize if it seemed like there was an odd vibe. Like, I know we've done shows apart, and um, it's way better when we're in studio. But, like, we have a different, like, camera set up. And, like, as I'm sitting here, I don't know if I should look at the camera, like, look down. It's got this laptop on my knee. Like, I just feel like I haven't been quick fire Cody as of, as of, as out of the past. But uh, regardless, you know, pick shouldn't matter. I'm not giving you shitty advice or phony advice. It's just I don't feel like I'm in, like, a rhythm right now. I don't feel, like, super entertaining on today's show. But regardless, entertainment secondary to winning. So hopefully we can turn this into a winningable event. And uh, uh, profitable, I should say. Winnable is not – winningable is not a word. Um, anyways, yeah, thanks as always, Paul Shaughnessy. And uh, hopefully next week, COVID protocol not in place. We'll be able to uh, do it in studio and have a couple beers. It always makes it weird with our setup here. Um, one, like, this is more of, like, a setup for me to switch from behind the camera. I've got a little keyboard right here so that's what you've been hearing in terms of it's set up for somebody to be a producer and the thing is too is that if i speak i will wash out cody's voice so i've been trying to like actively not engage back and forth kind of letting him have his wheel and then i'll say what i have to say because it gets all washed out then people get triggered in the comments so that's what kind of threw it off but uh, we're actually moving out east at the end of the month here um, I'm going to be setting up for at least this show more of a more of an ideal like more of an ideal setup for the both of us just to kind of shoot the shit together like as if we were in the same room because this setup that we've got right now is more for one person to host a show and and the other person to be the guest of the show if that makes any sense it makes it a little bit awkward and I'm just like staring into you know I'm staring at a camera into like into the void here. There's there's nobody else here. It's it's Dude, a little that, bit it's a little bit weird. Thing. It throws off yeah. the vibe. It throws off the energy. It's a, it gets a little bit uh, weird to get used to. So maybe it threw threw it off for you. Threw it off for me. Uh, any final thoughts? Yeah. Anything else? No, dude. That's it. Like no See, I just the did webcam. it right there. So when I when I look at the webcam, your your face is right below the webcam. So it's yeah. like I'm talking to the webcam, but I see you. It's kind of like I'm talking to you right now. This camera's up here. So. I'm trying to talk up here. I can't see you. I'm getting lost. No, I know. Uh, just That's need, the way that we the way that we share it. It's you get to see whatever is up on the screen, which is great when we have like graphics and stuff going. But I obviously can I, like I add the graphics in in post in the way that we've got it set up here. Anyway, Throwing next pain. week we've got a pay per view. We've got you know the second baptism of uh, of Jose Masvidal, who's got no shot. I mean, he's got a I guess a puncher's chance, but Jose. Uh, uh, George Masvidal is getting is getting beaten again by Kamara Usman next week. Okay, well, I don't care what anybody stakes, says about that. To up the stakes for next week, we'll be in studio. We'll have yep. a good time. It'll be much better. Uh, Shoey bet Romanov versus Espino. Are you in? I got Romanov. You got Espino. Straight up. 
I mean, after the bloodbath that I took last week, what's the worst that could happen? I, I okay. have a, I have it's a shoey here in studio. I haven't been bringing that boot in for a while. The weather has been uh, clearing up up here in uh, Toronto. Anyway, that is it for us. Shoey bet. Shoey on the line. Espino versus Romanov. I just think that uh, Espino has a little bit more of the complete game at this point. Anyway, but that is it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. For Cody Zapsnick, I'm Paul Shaughnessy saying goodbye and good luck. Oh, oh, oh. Oh.